Support for Boston Public Radio comes from Revision Energy. Sunbug Solar is now part of Revision Energy, a solar installer committed to being a renewable energy partner for New England and working to fight climate change. Learn more at sunbugsolar.com. Ahead on Boston Public Radio, we'll hear from you about state lawmakers' plan to send out $250 rebates to help with rising prices, but not for people making less than $38,000 a year. And for those of you who are eligible, will it really help? Then we'll hear from retired federal judge Nancy Gertner on what can be done to shore up reproductive rights in the wake of a Supreme Court decision, what can be done about the Supreme Court itself, and a case they've agreed to take that could have major, and I mean major, implications for future elections. I'm Jared Bowen, and for Marjorie Egan, Governor Charlie Baker has pledged $12 million for community health centers, ensuring continued access to vaccines and other vital health services to low-income residents. Michael Curry, head of the League of Community Health Centers in Massachusetts, joins us to discuss. That's all ahead on Boston Public Radio. listening to Boston Public Radio. We are live at the Boston Public Library. I am Jim Browdy. Jared Bowen is sitting in for Marjorie Egan, who is on vacation but shall return on Monday. Hello, Jared. How are you? Hello, Jim. I'm well. Now, how did I know that you were filling in for Marjorie today? Do you have any idea what the clue was? Does it have anything to do with food? It does. And what would that be? That the spicy Jared sandwich is back here yes, at the Yes, it Boston is back at the Newsfeed Cafe. You want to tell people what the spicy Jared is, please? Well, it's, it's a, a very gorgeous rendition of the buffalo chicken sandwich. By the way, it took President Lee Pelton to get this sandwich back here. true, from the here. Boston Foundation, yeah. And what is it again? It's a variation on what? Uh, the buffalo chicken sandwich. Yeah, it's right next to the gym, by the way, for whatever <laughs> that's worth. So good to have you, Jared. And as I say, Marjorie will return on Monday. And we are streaming, if you are not wise enough to be here at the Boston Public Library. And by the way, thank you all for coming. We are streaming at youtube.com slash GBH News. So I'm sure you read yesterday state lawmakers proposed a one-time tax rebate of 250 bucks for individuals to millions of people throughout the Commonwealth. The rebates would go to people making less than $100,000 a year, more for married couples. And get this, get this, they have to make more than $38,000. And I'll do the reverse for you. If you make less than $38,000, how much do you get, Jared? Zero. You get nothing. When asked about this $38,000 floor, the House Speaker Ron Mariano said it had to do with the fact that low-income earners in the state already received an extra $500 in the state's COVID recovery package sometime in the spring. The rebates would go into effect in October if bills pass both legislative branches before uh, people on Beacon Hill go on a six-month vacation, and obviously the governor's got to sign that too. So we want to know your thoughts on this proposed rebate. Would 250 bucks, 500 for a couple, up to 150 grand of income, would it make a difference in your life with rising inflation, gas prices, etc.? Uh, or would you rather see all that money, it's going to cost roughly a half a billion dollars, put together and dedicated to something that would benefit everybody? Uh, improvements at the T. Uh, better and more affordable and accessible child care. Give us a buzz or text us at 877-301-8970. Again, 877-301-8970. And you can tweet us at BOS Public Radio. So what are your thoughts, Jared Bowen? 
Well, I, yeah, I think it's a nice psychological boost, perhaps. I mean, this comes out of the fact that the state has, a, I think, as you mentioned, the $3.6 billion yeah, surplus. Huge. This is huge. Hu- literally huge because we've not had this before. And so to send this out is, I guess, good, but I don't know how far it goes. It does, certainly helps. You can't leave the supermarket now without having a huge chunk of that $250 taken away. But how it excludes those making less than $38,000, accommodating apparently for the fact that they already got the $500 check a while ago, it just doesn't make any sense you know, to that, that the people is, most in need. Well, that's exactly right. And if they had said we're going to have it from 38000 to 100000 as absurd as it be, and they didn't explain why, you might fall for it. But the argument, as you say, that, well, they already got something in the spring. A family or an individual making less than $38,000 got a $500 check five months ago. And as a result, what, do they don't need the $500? So that's one flaw. And two, again, I think it's a nice gesture. And this is what I'm about to say does not mean I don't understand that people are having a lot of financial problems because of the prices of everything. So, in fact, can I tell you one thing for a second? The, I don't, maybe this is selfish. I'll get trashed for it again. I like watermelon a lot. Yeah. Uh, ordinarily, a little triangle, they call triangles a little slice of watermelon, yep. like at Whole Foods is maybe $3.50. You know what it was yesterday? No. Same size, $8.90. So having said that, I'm not going to be income eligible for this thing uh, anyway, so take me out of this mix. It seems to me it's like one of those gimmicks kind of thing. That's what's going to aggravate. I know a lot of people who need the money. It seems to me there are a lot, like the tea, we're going to talk to our transportation people at 1230 or something today. The tea is a mess. Would the average person rather get a check for 250 bucks or see some serious additional money poured into the tea to make sure it's a little less dysfunctional? I don't know what the answer is, but that's why we're asking for your thoughts. At 877-301-897. You know what this seems like to me? We have to show the public that we understand that they have problems and we can't figure out anything more complicated to do that might be more... I'm serious, more beneficiary. I mean, I was a city councilor for a term. I understand gimmickry, believe me. And it's sort of like, well, let's do this because we have, as you say, billions of extra dollars. And by the way, they're saying it doesn't preclude them from doing some of Governor Baker's permanent tax cuts. The governor's going to be with us a week from... On July 21st, we'll talk to him about that too. Uh, That's the deal. 877-301. 8970 is our uh, number, and you can text us and call us at the same sort of thing. By the way, just for those who are getting nervous about the, the ceilings, my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, Jared, is it's 100 grand for an individual, 150 grand for a married couple. That's the ceiling, yep. and it goes from 250 for an individual to 500 for that couple. And exactly. again, as you say, under $38,000 for an individual, they get absolutely nothing, which is just. Stunning is just absolutely stunning. I assume they'll fix that before this thing goes through. I would think so. I am very curious. It's been a while since I've been so eager to hear what our callers, I'm always interested, of course, but so eager to hear because this, I mean, it it clearly resonated with you and with me, but it doesn't make sense. And they, of course, are weighing this against other gimmicks, as you call it, like suspending the gas tax and other things. Well, they did. In all fairness, they said no to that. Even though their fellow Democrat, Joe Biden, was the one that urged state legislatures to suspend and the gas tax, the overwhelmingly Democratic legislature, I think to their credit, said that doesn't make sense because it's, what's that expression, robbing Peter to pay Paul? Because right, right. it takes money out of, you know, important things that fund highways and all that sort of thing. 877-301-8970, I'm giving myself a headache. Uh, Christine, you're in Cape Cod, and you happen to be first on Boston Public Radio. Thank you for calling. Hi. Hi, Christine. Hi, 
Jim. Hi, I love you guys. I listen to you all the time. What do you think um, of Jared? Yeah. Not that much? What do you think? <laughs> I love Jared, too. Whatever. Okay. And I love Marjorie. Yeah, she's, she's okay. I don't know if she's yeah. coming back. Go I'm ahead. I'm actually on vacation right now, too. Um, so, yes, I am a Cape Cod resident. I live in Bourne. And it is an insult to think that $250 is going to do anything in my life. I was just at Walmart and spent over $250 to try to make baklava for my son's birthday with my Albanian mother-in-law. Wow. So they should take all of that money and do something sensible with it, like fix the Bourne and Sagamore bridges, reroute the traffic down here so that it doesn't take locals, you know, over two hours to go 13 miles. It's totally insane. I I had no idea we were even going to get $250 back. But hearing you say that just just irritates me <laughs> when I live where I live. Well, you know, by the way, Christine, the you said fix or repair. Use some verb for the two bridges. Theoretically, they're being replaced. Is that n- not the case? They're going to be replaced. But when? Uh, when are they going to replace them? I think. How old are your kids? Money. My son is seven. He's when his grandson is yeah. born is when they're. <laughs> yeah. That's the target date. Christine, enjoy your vacation, and thank you for the call. Here on text, there are two different opinions. Here's Benjamin in Brighton. Sending out free money to people is a, it's not free, but sending out free money to people is a great way to fight inflation. I'm going to spend it on goods right away. He's obviously in favor. The next texter, Jared, crushed it. It's a psychological boost, but in this economy, won't help much. Let's save it and dedicate it all to the T so the people can safely get to work uh, to make money. Oh, that's Colin. I'm sorry, in East Boston, he did sign it. So there is a uh, – it's really hard to resist. I mean, when you're suffering financially, it's – I mean, I, I know this is like so obvious. It's ridiculous. It's hard to say no to almost anything, even if it's not enough money. As the head of the Mass Budget and Policy Center said, you know – People are worried about their rent, and this doesn't even cover a significant chunk of people's uh, rent. And so one might argue, if you're going to do this, maybe make it more significant than $250, which seems performative, to use the word of the day, but uh, that's what they propose. Well, of course, you're also measuring this against the the federal stimulus checks, which were considerably more, so this doesn't seem like as much. And, of course, when the federal checks came, it took you a lot further than it is that these checks will take Well, they're also long gone. I mean, gone like in a nanosecond. But I'm just saying, if you compare, well, the federal government gave us this much, and it helped us this much, but, uh, yeah, where is $250 going to get us? But uh, on the other hand, I can see people thinking that they can spend their money more wisely than the state might. So you're pretty much coming down firmly on both sides. I'm not, you but are I'm good... trying to see the other point. Jack of and Concord, you're on Boston Public Radio with Jared Bowen and me, Jim Browdy, and we're at the library. Hey there. Hey. Hi. <laughs> I've tried calling for it. I've never gotten through. This is cool. Well, glad you did. Yeah, I, so I, I work in Concord, but I live in Fitchburg, and 500 bucks would actually make a, a big difference in my life right now is because I have to drive for work. Okay. And I, I feel like the central and western mass crowd doesn't, isn't going to benefit from a lot of the, the public infrastructure stuff like the T. Um, so like $500 isn't a lot of money for a couple, but it's, it's, it's more than nothing. (laughs) I don't know. Well, by the way, I think you do know, I think the more than nothing is a pretty compelling argument. I think what you're basically saying, even if it isn't what I need, it'll help. And, uh, or even if it won't fill the need. And I think that's, if I had a bet, if there was a poll, I would guess that that'd be the, uh, that'd be the dominant uh, position. Jack, thank you so much. 
for your uh, call. We appreciate it. You want to be nice, by the way? You know, we're, I read in the Globe this morning, we're one of only three states, what a shock, that has not released its annual budget yet. We're late, as always. It would have been great if this came out at the same time that the budget came out so that leaders could stand up and say, at the same time that we're giving you, we admit, a small but we hope helpful amount of money, we are also investing X amount of dollars in childcare. We're investing Y amount of dollars in the T. And, you know, or how th- about the still hard hits art sector, which I'm waiting to see what that budget is. Is there significant money in the, uh, for arts? I don't, I, it, not as much as they always call for. You know, one of the things, by the way, in terms of recurring things, which is what Governor Baker wants, which is to these four permanent tax cuts affecting renters and he would argue seniors, meaning our estate tax is arguably not terribly competitive. It starts at a much lower rate than other states do, and a few other things that he would do. Uh, that This surplus we have, both the federal money and the surplus in the budget, are not recurring kinds of things. So I would guess what the legislators on Beacon Hill would say about this one-time deal is this is coming out of non-recurring funds. I don't mean to give people a headache, so that makes sense kind of thing. We're not going to have budget surpluses every year. We're probably never going to get a multi-billion dollar check yeah. from the federal yeah. government again, as we did around infrastructure and other stuff. Let's go to Cambridge where Daniel is on the phone. Daniel, thank you for calling. Hi. Hi, Daniel. Hi, guys. Huge hey. fan. First time caller. Thank you for both things. Welcome. Um, the, the worry that I have is the Fed is saying we have inflation that's driven by all this money in the economy. That, like this demand side inflation. So if we give people more money, doesn't that just make the problem worse? Shouldn't we uh, use that money to focus on making things cheaper instead? Boy, that's a really interesting perspective. I mean, I think every economist agrees that given a lot of money and having people spend it, while one side, as the caller right before you, Daniel, said, I need it to cover my expenses. The other side, it will have some impact on inflation. But a guy who I trust in this, John Gruber, the economist from MIT with us a couple of days ago, said even the federal stimulus money, which was, as Jared said, much larger by comparison, had only a modest impact uh, uh, on inflation. But your, your perspective is interesting. It's about why not use it to make things more affordable. You may know, we're going to talk to the uh, transportation people at 1230, in this bill that relates to the T. Uh, the one thing that was left out of it was a proposal to at least do a pilot on low-income or free fares around the state. So they rejected your advice, at least on one front, Daniel, but it's an interesting perspective. Thank you for calling, 877-301-8970. Sophia in Cambridge, why isn't this money being funneled directly into schools along with free lunch uh, programs? Christine on Twitter, I'm against this 250 payout and would rather see the money spent in ways that will truly benefit the state or give it to the lowest earners or add it to Medicaid. The list goes on and on. Marcelo Garcia from The Globe yesterday talked about a huge hole in Medicaid funding as relates to undocumented kids and their basic needs. That would only be $100 million. This is $500 million. Uh, I think she would argue it's probably far better spent there. As I started this segment by talking about the psychological boost it's giving people, but again, you go to these low-income earners who are not going to receive the check. What message does it send to them that everybody else is going to get this check, and yet you're struggling more than ever? Again, we're talking about things that have drastically changed just in the last few months, how hard it is for people to make the rent, how hard it is for people to just get food on the table for the $8 slice of watermelon. Can you, well, I, don't th- I didn't buy it, by the way. But, uh, but you know, getting back to that thing that you're focusing on, what the Speaker of the House said yesterday, can you imagine a person making 30 grand? Here's what he says, 
and says, the reason you're not included in this $250 check thing, which isn't much anyway, is because you already got a check, what was it, March, I think it was, or April? <clears throat> Four months ago or three months ago, you got a check for $250, it was $500, I think, from the state, and that should be enough. For, I mean, how insensitive, how tin-eared is that? It is really, it's pretty, it's pretty incredible. 877-301-897. Let's go to Framingham, where Nancy's on the phone. Nancy, thank you for calling. Hi. 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 I have a lot of questions and issues about this. Inflation is out of control. I anticipate it's going to be really out of control for the rest of the year. I'm a 77 disabled woman. I'm on, I get Social Security, and it's not much, believe me. Annually, last year, it was not under 9000 I get a stipend, which, is, which I have doubled over the last, Two years, and I'm responsible for my own food, clothing, and supplies like toilet paper, paper, uh, paper towels, soap, shampoo, things like that. And it's tough. It's really, really tough because I've always uh, admired myself for my own budgeting with, with limited income. But these days, it's 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 not sustainable. And your position is, I assume, Nancy is why am I, of all people, being excluded from the, albeit modest, benefit of this? You could really use it, right? $1,000 income. Nancy, thank Um, you for the call. I hope people, I hope legislators hear, Nancy, for what you say, 9,000 bucks from Social Security or some such thing? I I think very small, not enough. And she got a check in the spring, they say, so there's no need to uh, write her uh, another one. All right, we are talking about the proposed one-time $250 tax rebate. That conversation continues with your calls and texts. Up next on Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy, Jared Bowen, sitting in for Marjorie, who returns on Monday. We're live at the Boston Public Library and streaming at youtube.com slash gbhnews. We're talking about the uh, story that broke yesterday that legislative leaders are proposing 250 bucks for an individual who makes more than 38000 and less than 100000 a little bit more 500 and a little bit more income uh, uh, thresholds 
for uh, married couples. We're asking if you think it's a wise expenditure of $500 million. Should it be spent as a whole on something else? How do you feel about the fact that people under 38 grand, like Nancy, the 77-year-old in Social Security who called a minute ago, will not be benefiting, I guess because the speaker said she already got hers, whatever that means, in the spring, 877-301-8970. Jim and Jared is a citizen of the text of the south coast of Massachusetts. You should know that fixing the tea does not affect me. I understand it's a problem for those who use the tea, but many citizens of Massachusetts do not. Well, you didn't sign that, so my apologies, but uh, um, south coast rail, that affects you. They've been talking about that for a couple of centuries here, and as far as I know, it hasn't been built yet, and one of the issues is funding. Even though people are committed to it, that's $500 million that could go to that. I mean, it can't go to everything, but it could go to something other than $250 checks, even though obviously some of our callers and a ton of our texters, Jared, want the money. Well, it might not affect people directly who don't use the tea, but this is also about climate change. The more we can put into public transportation and make this more readily available, the more cars we can take off, off the road and change the issues involving the climate that the cars, are, you know, the emissions that cars are producing. You know, a compromise could be also to subsidize the cost of watermelon. Because that is another $8 in some sense for a little tiny triangle of watermelon. And we should say that this is a trial balloon, I feel like, in which we're all clearly shooting down with our slingshots right now. Because the 250 Yeah, because it still has to be passed it is by not the a legislature. Trial, you think they're going to offer it and then pull it back? Well, no, no, no. I think they may enhance it or revisit oh. it. But this doesn't get fully signed off on until the governor does it by the end of the month. Right. And by the way, if you, for those who uh, – I don't want to get lost in the weeds here, but – I will get lost in the weeds for a second. The reason they have to pass this by the end of the month is because the legislators, who you pay, by the way, uh, on an, in an election year, uh, leave for the year at the end of July. They're off August, September, October, November, December. And what they will say to you, if you confront them about that, is they're working back in the district. And by the way, the real reason is they have re-election campaigns, except... Most of them don't have re-election campaigns because almost nobody runs against anybody in Massachusetts. So the notion that they take off uh, for five months to me is, frankly, disgraceful. Sally in Lexington, what's your deal? Hey, Sally. Hi. I want to thank you, Jared, for bringing up climate change. I think it is egregious that the money is being spent in any way other than electrifying our heating, our cooling, uh, it can be done except for a lack of will by the legislature. Thank you for mentioning that, Jared. I'm a first-time caller, and I love the show. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank, Thank you, you so very much. much. Thank you for your first call, Sally, and thanks for your... Uh, did you steal her idea from her, or you, was that your own idea? It was my own idea. Thank you very I much. I, I know so. it is a Friday, and you don't think I'm equipped. I but. don't think so. I didn't say you weren't equipped. You have your own sandwich. Do you? Is anybody here eating the spicy Jared, by the way, yet? Not one person well, at the library is at the spicy it's not Jared. not even lunchtime yet. And by the way, it's this little... Describe what it is again. I think they're interested. It's buffalo chicken with some blue cheese, mm-hmm. lettuce, a beautiful bun... Spicy Jared. Now, let me tell you, I know him. He is a spicy Jared. Trust me. I'm just telling you. Draw your own conclusions. I thought we were going to keep those things off here. Well, uh, you got to be honest with the listeners. Let's go to, where do you want to go, actually? Let's go to Jonathan in Waltham. Hi, Jonathan. Hey, Jonathan. Hello. Thanks so much for letting me share some thoughts. Good. Um, I, think what, I think what we have is a crisis of imagination. I, we, we share a lot in common in our current climate with the Great Depression. I mean, back then they had a pandemic, they had an economic downpour, uh, downpour, and also they had war. 
And I think we just need to reinvest in our economy. This is a drop in the bucket. We need to get creative. Here's as an example, Governor Calvin Newsom is about to start manufacturing in California. Um, insulin. Insulin, thank you. Yep, it's um, great. You know, so we need to get creative. We need to create jobs. We need to reinvest back into the Massachusetts taxpayers and not just pretend that $250 is going to somehow uplift everyone. Jonathan, you're a genius, and I mean that. That was great, and I had totally forgotten about this thing that's happening out in uh, California. By the way, the vast majority of Republicans in the House voted the other day against cutting the cost of uh, insulin. And speaking of cutting the cost, here's a, thanks for a call, Jonathan. Here's a quiz for you. Who was the person responsible for raising the cost of the EpiPen somewhere in the neighborhood of 500 percent a few years ago and who is she the daughter of you can answer either or both questions who's that i'm blanking on okay i don't know her name but she runs the company and she is the daughter of joe manchin thank you very much uh, nice. point being yeah. it runs in the family yeah. where do you want to go next well and let's just point out uh, to jonathan's point we're dealing with 5.9 billion dollars here so there's a lot of great creative ways that this money could go toward helping but talk about outside the box the i mean all you and i exactly. have talked about is investing more right. in that which is what gavin newsom yeah. who is clearly running for president which is fine with me whether whatever the motivation is is totally thinking outside the box when insulin is unaffordable then one of the ways to do it is doing what he's doing at manufacturing yeah. your home state Let's go to Joanne in Hubbardston. Hello, Joanne. Hi. Um, this is about the gas tax rebate yeah. and how be on SSI, SSID. Yeah. Um, they, they should, we should get like $1,000 a month, and we're not even included in the tax, you know, the rebate. Uh, Joanne, so, they're talking about 250 once. Do you think they're about to be sending checks for 1000 bucks a month to the people of Massachusetts, even if... It is deserved? I don't think so. Do you? No, I don't. But I do believe that um, Governor Baker's idea about having the tax um, gas tax to be held was a better idea. You mean reducing the tax or eliminating the state tax on yeah, the gas for, tax? You know, for, yeah. You I'm, said for a few months at least? Yeah, he was talking about a few months. But unfortunately, Joanne, it is not uh, going to uh, happen. Because I'm, Joanne, I'm sure you have yeah, clear ideas of where that money could go immediately for in your situation. I think she's off the call. I think I hung up on but, her yeah. in it unintentionally. By the way, I, this is a stunningly equal split, by the way. I'm looking at these texts as uh, Joanne was speaking. And it's really, and there are tons of them, it's like a 50-50 proposition. Because you, you can understand being pulled in both directions. Intellectually, you may say it'd probably be far better to spend $500 million which is what the cost of this program is, to things that I care about that are inadequately funded. But the flip side is, as a couple of callers have made clear, uh, they could use the 250 bucks, or if married, the 500 bucks. We have time for one more. Neil and Medway, it would be you. Hi, Neil. Hi, Neil. Hello, Jim. Hi. How's it going? Hi. Say hi to Jared, too, because he feels bad. Hi. Hi, Jared. Hi, Jared. Hi, Neil. What's up? I just want to call because I'm amazed that, like... (laughs) So the cap is what thirty eight to a hundred thousand dollars. That yeah, correct? that's the eligibility hole. Thirty eight thousand. So, yeah, to a hundred grand. There's a massive difference between someone making thirty eight and a hundred thousand dollars, and I, I think that maybe having some sort of scale uh, going from that number. Well, let let alone the whole below thirty eight. I mean, people need a lot of help. Um, you know, it's just strange to me that you, you would have this 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 proposal and you're just you know, putting a, the same size Band-Aid on every single type of wound. 
And, uh, but you're not, I hope you're not arguing that the higher your income is, the more you should get, because I meant to say before, but I forgot. I would argue the lower your income, the more you should get, because the need is greater, including under the $38,000. If anything, it should phase, begin to phase out rather than just be eliminated at the $100,000 level. Do you agree with that, oh, Neil? That, that, that's exactly what I'm saying. Okay. Yeah, My apologies. Yeah. Neil, thank <laughs> exactly, you for your yeah, call. That's the more you should get. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for calling in. Well, thank you to everyone who called and texted just now. Next, we will check in with retired federal judge Nancy Gertner on what President Biden can and could do to protect abortion in America and other ramifications stemming from recent Supreme Court decisions. That's next on Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy, Jared Bone, executive arts editor here at GBH, sitting in for Marjorie. Marjorie's back from vacation on Monday. We're live at the library, streaming at youtube.com slash GBH News. Right now, at a, roughly this minute, I don't know if it's actually happening yet, the president will be addressing the nation, explaining steps that he will be taking to protect abortion by executive action in the wake of the overturning of Roe in the Stobbs decision a week or so ago. Joining us now with thoughts on that and a host of other issues pertaining to the nation's highest court, we're joined now by retired federal judge Nancy Gertner. The reason I'm laughing, I should, she's now at Harvard, by the way. The reason I'm laughing is because judges, uh, Judge Gertner, ordinarily <laughs> sit above 
yeah. the people they're talking to. You look like you're sitting in a hole here at the Boston <laughs> Public Library. Nevertheless, we are thrilled to have you. This will have to change. This will have to change. <laughs> this will have to change. Good to see you, Judge. Well, we could flip the script. We're, we're just your court officers That's standing, right. standing, exactly. standing right. next to you, flanking right. you. Well, let me ask you, start by asking you about the, the Supreme Court. You were part of a commission that was studying the Supreme Court for change, looking at things like term limits. Should the court be expanded? Should How and should there be more transparency within the court? I know you came out of that. There was not a lot of momentum for change, what do you see happening now? I, I think we're beginning to see that because to some degree, uh, really, this was a rogue court. I, I, the, I think the, the minute after the Dobbs decision, I was on this program yes. and I said it was a coup. It was, a, it was essentially a legal coup. In a sense, this court was doing what it wanted to do because they could. And it was almost as if there was a sort of flavor of the month, just as Thomas had been wanting to overturn uh, uh, gun regulations. Uh, Justice Alito has been wanting to overturn uh, Roe v. Wade for the longest time. Justice Gorsuch wanted a narrow uh, administrative, the administration, administrative state, which was in the EPA case. And it's like they all had, because there are six of them, they could do whatever they want. Uh, precedents come crashing down, understandings of the past... Uh, you know, 50 years and even more, they were ignoring. Um, and the, the problem is that because of the, the, the packed court that McConnell has affected, you add to that the voting rights limitations that the Republicans are seeking and a court that is enabling them. Witness the North Carolina case that's coming up. We'll talk about essentially this configuration of the Supreme Court will be baked in for generations. But and ne that never happened before. But Judge Gardner, you were an advocate. Uh, come, you and Larry Tribe, your buddy, uh, uh, came out of this commission, we've discussed this before, saying expansion of the court, which has been done I think nine times in our history by Congress, doesn't it require a constitutional amendment, is a, is a good I idea. Even the President of the United States, who has railed against the behavior of this court, opposes that reform. So it's sort of, it's almost like fantasy land right now. In answer to the question Jared talked to you about momentum, is it not, or is momentum actually being gained somewhere? Well, there is, there are more and more people talking about expanding the court because more and more people recognize that having this hyper conservative majority baked in for generations, the way they're doing it, um, as, as someone wrote about, will sort of have us sort of go, you know, careen back into the 1930s. Uh, with respect to women's rights, I believe it's even earlier than that. Um, so, yeah, I think that, that there's more momentum. Whether or not that momentum will go anywhere without Biden's support is another question. Is there anything else on the table that does pass the current political laugh test? I don't mean that disrespectfully in terms of the expansion. I, don't, I mean it. That has a greater likelihood of convincing, for example, a mansion and a cinema, two senators, that maybe there should be a filibuster carve-out to make this change. Is there a more modest change that would make a difference? Well, the, there's no... The, the, the filibuster carve-out is essential both for abortion to be able to enshrine abortion rights nationally, but filibuster carve-out would be necessary to expand the court. In other words, you could say, as they have said with Supreme Court nominees, that with respect to the Supreme Court, you, all you needed was a... 50 uh, vote. Was a 50 vote, right. Um, so they, they certainly could do that. So they'd have to... You're right. They'd have to cut back... They'd have to limit the filibuster, and then we'd have to expand the court. But there, there are more people talking about it. I don't know whether this momentum will go anywhere until Biden signs on. But uh, Biden needs to sign on. F full stop. Otherwise, we are locked into this 
really never, never world. I, I, I keep on reading about the implications of the Dobbs decision, you know, on the women had the wanted pregnancy, but the miscarriage where the doctor waits until the fetus dies in order to intervene. I mean, it is lunacy where we are, just lunacy. From your time on the commission, did you get a sense of president aside and seeing where and when he decides to step in on this, whether something is most in reach, whether it actually is expanding the court or whether it's something like term limits, which people might find more palatable? The problem with term limits, which would be palatable and which, which also would make our court like courts all across the Western world, really, that all have term limits, that requires a constitutional amendment. I mean, to some degree, whereas, whereas expanding the court does not require a constitutional uh, amendment, and I think that's why people were, were focused on it. But, I, you know, something needs to be done. Otherwise, we are, you know, concretizing these t- bizarre decisions, and I can't tell you how, how bizarre they are. By the way, for whatever it's worth, for people not paying attention, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Coney Barrett are all in their young 50s. Right. Which means, and what did Stephen Breyer retired at 80-something, which means, if in all likelihood, three more decades they could be serving on the Supreme Court. Which, which makes the haste, their haste to sort of undo the precedent that they, that they have this, this term, really remarkable. You'd think, I mean, I, I've written about Ginsburg, and I've been on this program talking about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She was, as some would describe her, a judicial restraint liberal. She believed in incrementalism, that you make change slowly. The three cases that I talked about, the gun case, the abortion case, the EPA case, the court went out of its way to decide something that they didn't have to decide. And that is, <laughs> that's an agenda. Well, I would argue they went even further. We've had this discussion before, but for people who haven't heard it, uh, the signs, at least to me, about what the future holds. In the abortion case, Thomas comes right out and says, we should look at contraception cases. We should look at same-sex marriage. Most observers think that the EPA case was the foot in the door, basically saying that federal regulatory agencies can't regulate, that only Congress can make these decisions, which would mean the regulatory, I mean, which would mean a standstill, That's right. total gridlock. And you subscribe to that notion that that is the direction in which they're going, well, yes? G- well, Gorsuch in particular believes that the only, that there are two things, two problems, that an administrative agency can't make regulations unless Congress is absolutely specific about the scope of that. Congress is rarely specific, right? Congress is a product of compromise. You had an expert agency to give the specific details. In addition, Gorsuch believes that there are certain areas in which the regulation is not appropriate at all. And so by ceding to Congress, we've essentially brought the economy to a standstill. And they know that they're doing this at a time that the Congress is as dysfunctional as it's probably with, been uh, in our lifetimes. We're talking to Nancy Gertner, former federal uh, district court judge. Yeah, you know, and maybe this falls in the category of civics lesson that I should have had, but as we start to th- anticipate next summer basically the, 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 the cases the court will take up over the next year. What do we need to be looking for, and how do we pay attention to that process of what the court decides to take up? All you need is four justices to take on a case, right? And so you already have the conservative supermajority baked in. They can take whatever case they want. They've taken the North Carolina yeah, case. Yeah, could you explain that in English? Okay. We're going to do it later, in but English. since you brought it up, <laughs> let's do it, yeah. In English, okay. Um, uh, North Carolina passed a statute that would essentially uh, enable the legislature... To, um, uh, to define what uh, the electoral requirements are. Uh, the, 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 and what's going up to the Supreme Court is whether the legislature, the state legislature, can fully define electoral requirements. As opposed to 
the, elector, the, the state legislature then being reviewed by a state constitutional court, by a state court. And what, we, what we've seen is uh, uh, Trump's coup, attempted coup, was to try to get each of the state legislatures to say, here's the electors, uh, not the ones that were that the majority vote suggested, but here are some electors that we're picking out of thin air. Um, and since the many, since all of the, uh, the the swing states have Republican legislatures, if it's true that the legislature is the final authority, not reviewed by a court, we're all in trouble. I mean, they could pick Trump electors even when Biden wins. So in a sense, the North Carolina case is perfecting, uh, is completing the coup that Trump tried. I mean, they essentially could... I mean, I hope people don't think this is hyperbole because I've read a lot about this too. If if the Supreme Court were to sign off on what the Republican legislature in North Carolina wants, as you say, if people in a state of North Carolina or one of these other states vote for John Doe and they want Jane Doe to be the winner, she becomes... The winner. Right. They have inc- right. they have unilateral one hundred percent authority. Two hundred. Again, this is a court that is. I mean, the notion that they took this case legitimizes it already. Two hundred years. It's clear that the electors were the people who were who who um, came who represented the majority vote in any given state, and if they did something different, if they picked Jane Doe. The, the state constitutional court, the, the, mm-hmm. their high court, would say this is inconsistent with our rules. This is saying that the state legislature has the last word. The state legislature has the last word, then the Republicans can do whatever they want. And that then feeds into what we were talking about before about the Supreme Court. We then have this minority government capable of appointing new justices for the foreseeable future. Talking to Nancy Gertner. Uh, just to circle back to what I was saying, so then you, you, you see them scanning, pulling the cases up, going back to what Clarence Thomas wrote, wrote about, looking for same-sex marriage cases that they can consider over the years, so this is what they'll spend the next year doing. And Clarence Thomas's uh, concurrence was essentially an invitation to raise those cases. You're saying, come on, come on in. We're, we're prepared to look again at same-sex marriage. Griswold was, was birth control birth control for married couples. We're prepared to look at all of them because the only thing that matters in the Constitution is what those 19th century and 18th century white slave-owning males decided to put in the Constitution. And if they mentioned guns, well, then that right is higher than everyone else's. It's It's an elevated right. They didn't mention women we didn't exist to them, <laughs> either in the 18th century or the 19th century. So the, it's really sort of ossifying attitudes from, uh, in a, you know, that's 200 years old. It's preposterous. It's preposterous, and I might add, we're the laughing stock of high courts around the, around the world. We're talking to Nancy Gardner. Can we talk about abortion for a couple of minutes? As I said when I introduced you, Judge Gardner, uh, the president, as we speak, will get... No Biden yet, they're saying. He's often quite late for his uh, appointed uh, pronouncements. Uh, Is, uh, by executive order, doing a handful of things on the abortion front. Uh, Some people think heartfelt, which I'm assuming it is. Some think because he's taken so much criticism from fellow Democrats about inaction, slowness and inaction. He's doing something directing uh, health and human services, from what we understand, 
to protect the right of women to get these uh, medical abortions, to get the pills, even though it doesn't spell out how, which concerns people. Their uh, HHS board supposedly going to report back in 30 days. And another thing, which is a nice idea, not a nice idea, it's an excellent idea, for women who are at the wrong end of a state prosecutors on a whole variety of things, he's saying the federal government should work to get lawyers available to these people. Once again, filling in no blanks as to how that happens. Talk a little bit about what you think about we believe Joe Biden is doing on the abortion front this morning, Judge well, Gardner. medical abortion, the pill, has the promise of completely uh, changing this picture. I won't want to say undoing the harm in the states that have prohibited abortion, but certainly changing the picture. Because if someone from Tennessee can write to a Boston pharmacy and get the pills in the mail, they get the pills in the mail. So it isn't that it would be legal, it would just be essentially unenforceable as a violation that, of the right. state's laws. That's right. And so, I mean, I, I don't quite understand how the states plan to keep people from doing that. That then relates to privacy issues. If you recall, one of the things that Biden wants to do is to keep, um, it when, when someone is inquiring of their doctor to get abortion, to, to try to protect, as they should, that inquiry. So that, that would be a, an end run around sending away for, for the pills. But bear in mind, the medical abortion pills have been approved by the FDA. Yeah. There's a real question here, whether a state can say, you know those pills that you've approved? Sorry, they're not. Uh, they're not viable here. The second... Um, By the way, just staying on that, yeah. if Joe Biden, in my opinion, I'm not an expert in this area, wanted to go another yard and make those pills more available and less discoverable, there a lot of people believe the FDA should approve them for over-the-counter sale. That's right. Which would remove the doctor from That's that right. equation, which would, which would be make of great it, value. Which would make an enormous difference. Yeah. It would make an enormous difference. It doesn't mean that the, that the states that are restricting abortion still... There are still issues of wanted pregnancies with a miscarriage and, you know, all of that, but certainly in terms of access to abortion. The second thing that Biden was talking, will be talking about, which, which I'm doing part of, is to try to organize people to represent anybody who is charged with an illegal abortion, aiding and abetting abortion, or interstate travel to get an abortion. I, for one, will go anywhere in the country uh, to represent anyone charged with any of that. And I think that there are numbers of us who are doing that as well and coming up with a list, numbers of organizations that are coming up with a list of, of lawyers who, frankly, will say, I'm, you know, we will represent you and we will clot their courts with representation if they go after these women. That's fabulous. So is this an organized thing that's actually it, percolating up kind yes, of thing? Yes, yes, I mean, other, or, you know, the various organizations are trying to get together to come up with this with this list, but I mean, I think, uh, you know, there is the long-term plan here and then there's a short-term plan and we have to be able to help uh, women who are suffering. We have to deal with doctors and, you know, um, you know, I'm supposedly retired. Of course, that's not remotely <laughs> true, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm prepared to go. So I'm just, so I'm clear. So the, once I, this is great. So once this thing were to happen, not just you as an individual, but you and many other lawyers willing to do this, somebody who is in legal trouble or fears that she may be in legal trouble or he, if it's the doctor doing this, calls a number, for example, and right. he or she is connected to a lawyer like you right. who will go represent them to, I assume, for free. Oh, yeah, right. There's no, there's no question. I mean, it's sort of, you know, when you think about it, it's um, uh, one of my, one of my uh, uh, law clerks 
organized something like this in the Bronx when there were stop and frisk bad searches uh-huh. of African-American men. He went to the law firms in New York, and he said, you have, law- you have younger lawyers who have never been in court. Give, me, give them to me, and we'll represent everyone who has been uh-huh. illegally stopped. And what happened was the stops stopped because they, the courts couldn't possibly handle them. That's what we're hoping for here. Well, speaking of where pregnant women can go to safely receive treatment, there's been also a call that the White House seems to have uh, uh, jettisoned for using federal lands for this purpose. Elizabeth, our own Elizabeth Warren, of course, has talked about this. Is that too cumbersome? What are the complications there? The, the, the complication is the, the um, uh, long ago, you know, people don't realize that Roe v. Wade was being cut back on almost the instant that it was decided. And one thing was that state federal funds can't be used for abortion. There's a statute that would have to be appealed. It was called the Hyde Amendment. Amendment. Yeah, and so the question is, to the extent that abortions on federal lands implicate federal funding, that would be a problem. Um, That would be a problem. But, you know, my feeling is, as I said, if you believe, as I do, that this is a just a complete reversal of everything we have ever believed in, I think that the, the federal government should pull out all stops. You so know, that may be you know, complicated, I, but I'm not mean because of the funding issue, but we have to figure out some way to be able to respond. But, you know, my, I'm not alone in this. This, in fact, is not an original thought. One of the, the federal government's not doing it because the Biden administration believes it's illegal. And as many critics say, when they say this is like an existential issue, this abortion issue, just do it. And then if a court, if a Judge Gertner knocks it down, so be it. And I said this, I think, yesterday. Well, a lot of people then say, well, that's not how Joe Biden operates. I remember Joe Biden saying, I don't know, a year and a half ago, I would love to extend the eviction moratorium, but I can't do it because it's illegal. And then what happened? His own CDC did it. They lost in court. But he decided to go for it. And it seems to me, this is a political, not a legal, well, it's a political and a legal question. You basically decide what can you do to protect reproductive freedom. You propose a panoply of things. And the worst that happens is they're struck down and you go back and you figure out another bunch of things. If for no other reason than the gin up the, the, the forces, even if you don't, do you not agree? No, no, I, I agree with you. Now, you can't sort of... It, when you're the chief law enforcement officer of the, you know, the chief, not law enforcement, the chief officer of the United States. When you're States, the president, right. When you're yeah. the president, you can't propose something that is blatantly illegal unless you're former President Trump. You can't <laughs> sort of say, oh, screw the, um, you know, the, the, the limitation on federal funding of abortions. I will go ahead and fund abortions. But clearly there's play in the joint, as you're suggesting. And there are lots of things that he could have done you know, my what would be at the top of that list if you were advising? Well, one would be one would be sort of making medical abortions over the counter, okay. uh, medical medical abortions. But I can tell you that one thing that happened, which was stunning to me, my kids are in thirty four and thirty six and and four, fifty, and um, uh, when the response to the Dobbs decision, to the abortion decision, was a fundraising letter from the from the Democrats to vote for them in November, they went crazy. They said that can't be the response. That's simply not adequate, and I think that that's right. Well, Judge Gartner, from your lips to uh, <laughs> uh, whatever. One more thing, because uh, I'm really excited about this lawyer thing. This is, I mean, I assume there'll be an announcement at some point. Yes, is this- there are numbers of organizations that have lists that are working to coordinate, to come up with a list of women and male lawyers when, and to, to be able to represent people 
um, that these laws are affecting wherever it happens, wherever it happens. And by the way, if there are mega rich people listening, and I assume there are, I mean, they should fund this effort too, because there are a lot of lawyers who are well-intended who would love to do it, who probably, <laughs> no, I'm serious, who probably can't afford. 1-800-GERTNER. I'm making <laughs> exactly. it up. <laughs> Thank you, buddy. So call 1-800-GERTNER, and she will be answering the phone herself in her car back to wherever. Nancy Gertner, it's great to see you. Thanks so much Good for your to time. See you. Take Thank care. you so much for being here. Retired federal judge Nancy Gertner, receiving great applause here at the library, is a senior lecturer at the Harvard Law School. She's also a BPR contributor. Coming up, we'll continue the conversation we had earlier in the show with you about those $250 rebates in the Commonwealth. This time we'll have that with Michael Curry from the Mass League of Community Health Centers. He'll also talk about postpartum care, shots for kids, and a whole lot more. He joins us next. You're listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. Boston Public Radio. In the final months of the Baker administration, criticisms of his leadership of the T are cruising towards top gear on safety, on reliability, and on honesty and transparency. Transit advocates Jim Eloise and Stacey Thompson join us to discuss the T's dysfunction and some good transit news. Pedestrian-only zones in Boston's neighborhoods. The first start this weekend in JP. I'm Jared Bowen, and for Marjorie Egan, do you value art less if it was created by artificial intelligence instead of a human? Tech writer and podcaster Andy Anako joins us to discuss the latest in digital art. Then we'll continue our live Music Friday series with players from the Fenway Porch Fest. That's all ahead on Boston Public Radio. Boston Public Radio, as we are every Friday. We're live at the Boston Public Library, streaming at youtube.com slash gbhnews. Marjorie's on vacation. She's back Monday, sitting in again today, ably and beyond, is my buddy Jared uh, Bowen, who's the executive arts editor here at GBH. Hey, Jared. Hello again, Jim. You know, I hate to give out, before we introduce Michael Curry, I hate giving out the streaming thing, because if there's any day, a beautiful Friday, if there was ever a time to come to the library, Newsfeed Cafe, Spicy Jared, the gym sandwich, of course, <laughs> which is unbelievable. And as some of you heard, who not some of you, everybody who here, was here at the library, heard a little rehearsal from some of the musicians from the Fenway Porch Fest. We've been ending every Friday with music, which to me is the way to go. And if you're not here now, I'd really come by for some wonderful music and talk. Uh, they're going to be on at about 1.30, and they're great three performers, so... If you're in the neighborhood, come on by. But first, joining us now via Zoom is Michael Curry. Michael chairs the NAACP's Advocacy and Policy Committee. He's also president and CEO of the Mass League of Community Health Centers, and he served on Governor Baker's COVID-19 Vaccine Advisory Committee. Michael, where are you? At Margaritaville again? Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? I forget. Where are you today? Well, well I will say this is an actual vacation. And oh, it I is. Am the, 
I'm sitting in Martha's Vineyard this week. So boy, it's tough. How can you handle that? I'll tell you. Well, well, I needed a vacation, so I'm glad I was able to come down with family. Well, well you're very sweet also in the middle of vacation to give us time. Good to see you, Michael. It's Good great, to see you as well. Great to see you. So let, let's continue a conversation we started having on the show today with our listeners, which is the news coming out of Beacon Hill that they'll issue these $250 one-time payments, kind of in recognition of the really hard situation a lot of people find themselves in. However, it only goes out to those making somewhere between $38,000 and $100,000. In other words, not to the people most in need below that. What, what do you make of this proposed plan? Yeah, I think uh, as the speaker and the Senate president, I know the speaker in the uh, most recent comments pointed out that there's been funding for uh, folks who are on the lower end of um, that scale and that this was targeted towards a a different demographic, those making more money than the previous um, distributions of funds. And I think, you know, the reality is um, the funds that were distributed earlier under the ARPA dollars um, were timely and important. Um, but those dollars have run out for those families that are poorer, uh, the, those families who uh, rep- make $38,000 or less uh, in income. So while the, uh, the legislature is looking at uh, meeting this, this challenge of people who are dealing with rising gas prices, uh, food costs that are uh, uh, ridiculous at this point, we still need to make, make sure that we're addressing the most vulnerable among us. And I think that they'll find a way to do that. Well, let me, if I may, I'm going to impersonate Michael Curry or what I <laughs> believe would be Michael Curry in this situation. Here's what I would say in addition to what the real Michael Curry just said. Madam uh, Senate President and Speaker, Mr. Speaker, uh, I appreciate your effort. And I think, as I just said, you should expand it to the lowest income people who need it. But with all due respect, as you know, I am the chair of a health equity compact. Uh, which is talking about the inequities in the healthcare system that were exposed yet again uh, during uh, the first couple of years of COVID. And I suggest you at least think about redirecting that $500 million to really help low and moderate income people where they need it fund the beginning of this health equity work. I'm not playing with you. I mean this sincerely. Would that not be a better place to spend a half billion dollars than a $250 check to individuals, even though they do need it? Well, I'll tell you, as I have a vacation fog, you said it better than the real Michael Curry. <laughs> Thank you. It's my pleasure. <laughs> and I'm serious. I mean, you know, the problem, it seems to me, and you've been around this as long as I have, Michael, yeah. is the immediate impact on the voter of... Michael Curry standing up and saying, I want to thank the legislature for the first half billion dollars in funding for health equity, which is going to lead in the middle and long term to better results for people of color, low income people, etc. You don't feel the immediate bang for your buck. The 250, there is an immediate bang for your buck. And that's the allure that legislators can't resist. No. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. We we sometimes in these efforts um, need to realize that we're in a very great position as a state financially. Um, and, you know, we have reserves. Um, we have, um, you know, our tax revenue uh, is looking good in terms of being able to deploy some dollars in places that are needed. Uh, and on top of that, we have federal funding, which, which we've not spent yet. So this great, gives us a great opportunity to have a, a, a broad reach in the families that we're responding to their financial crisis right now. And it is a crisis 
as people can't afford to pay for gas as they can't yeah. potentially afford to put, afford to put food on the table or pay rent, uh, which is monthly, of course, and their mortgages. Michael Curry, let's ask you about something we've been talking to a lot of our guests about this week, which is the Patriot Front protest movement through Boston last week. And now, in in retrospect, there's a two-pronged focus on authorities. One, how did they not know about this before this event happened? And two, once the call started to come in that this was happening, why didn't they arrive on the scene in mass? So what do you make of what's happened here, which is, again, a recurrence of something that's already happened at Brigham and Women's and the St. Patrick's Day Parade and the, the, what many are calling a complete lack of response by police? Yeah, so it's always disturbing when these hate groups march through Boston or any other city or town in this country, but we know uh, they have a right to do that. Um, But we know it's disturbing um, that they're in our cities and towns, that they are um, disturbing our peace um, with their hate rhetoric. Uh, The reality is that we rely on our our law enforcement to deal with all groups equally equally. Uh, I happened to be there on the streets during the protests uh, after the murder of George Floyd. I know the reaction of some law enforcement that felt um, confrontational, quite frankly, uh, with the audiences, the crowds, I should say, that were marching and protesting. Uh, As we see hate groups march through our streets, we want them to be, our law enforcement, to be equally as vigilant to keep the peace, uh, equally as responsible to be uh, engaging them proactively and making sure that they're aware of uh, where there could be some conflict with pedestrians, with people on the street. Um, And I just feel like we dropped the ball there. I think many uh, would agree, even in law enforcement, uh, that we were not on top of that. You know, so I guess you've answered the question that Rachel Rollins at the press conference the other day asked, would they have treated Black Lives Matter protesters the same? I mean, that's a, this is not just the one, if, if the answer to that is no, they wouldn't have, and no, they didn't, according to you who was there, that really poses a far deeper question than just how they handled this particular march of 100 people, Michael Curry. Yeah, I mean, we have to get past this whole notion that uh, thinking that we treat crowds the same. We don't, right? We don't, view, we don't view the threat the same, right? Even as we just look at the young man who was uh, arrested for the horrendous crime and the shooting at the parade. Uh, we don't look at uh, uh, people as the same threat. I, I remember, and I'll digress to say this really quickly, when Commissioner Evans at the time invited me to speak to the uh, Boston police cadets years ago. And I remember walking into the room and probably 95% of them were white men. And I remember asking the question as I was the guest speaker, I said, if you walk up to a scene and a, a, a white woman with a knife runs out of the, uh, out of the house, uh, when do you shoot? When a middle-aged white man runs out of the house with a knife towards you, when do you shoot? Uh, When a young black man with braids and baggy jeans runs out of the house, when do you shoot? And the reality is you can see the look on their faces. They don't shoot all at the same time. And I was making a point to them that we see threat differently. We may retreat uh, with one and not with the other. We may use force at a protest with one and not at the other. We have to really get to this point about racial animus and implicit bias in how we do work in law enforcement throughout this country. And I think this is part of that conversation. 
So Jim and I were talking before the show, uh, obviously just profoundly disturbing news, what happened in Japan to Shinzo Abe, of, for anybody who hasn't perhaps heard at this point, shot and killed in that country where guns are virtually prohibited. And Jim and I were talking about the fact that we're seeing what's happening here in this country, and the laws are so strict in Japan, it, it, it's, it, it's kind of staggering to think the lengths at which they've gone, that handguns are forbidden so are small-caliber rifles are illegal to buy or sell. There's a comprehensive, hugely bureaucratic process for anybody who does try to get a gun. There can't be more than three gun shops in the country. New cartridges are only purchased after old cartridges are returned. So basically, they do everything they can to ensure that there are no guns in the country. And, of course, this still happened. We understand it was a handmade gun. But I mean, how is it for you to consider the lengths at which some countries have gone to make sure what's happening in the United States now doesn't happen in their own place? Yeah, so we know countries view the right to carry arms differently, right? And we uh, consider the Second Amendment right here in this country sacred. Um, And we know that uh, by the data, 127 million people in Japan, uh, the 2018 numbers, I think only nine firearm deaths in Japan at that time. That is shocking. 329.5 million here in the United States. And even at this point in the year, we're over 300 plus mass shootings since January. Um, That should shock us, right? We want to be able to not be Japan, embrace our Second Amendment right, but not uh, allow the Second Amendment right to give free reign, open access to any kind of arms. And and quite frankly, you know, as we used to the term weapons of mass destruction, uh, guns that can go into crowds and kill large numbers of people in seconds, Um, um, This is a threat to all of us. So even if you are a gun-toting Second Amendment um, person in this country, you have to know that your family could be at risk um, by this unbridled access to weapons. Yeah, before we leave this, I want to complete that that, that number you said. You were right. In 2018, there were nine firearm deaths in Japan. In the same year in the United States, 39,000. Nine firearm deaths in Japan. 39,000 in the United States. Michael Curry, since we so rarely have good news to discuss with you, let's spend a minute. We'll come back to Massachusetts, talk about what your day job is when you're not on vacation. (laughs) League of Community Health Centers, a huge increase, at least it appears to me, from the state inspired by the governor directed at your work. Is that that right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, We've been in regular contact with Secretary Sutters and Governor Baker around how do we respond to COVID-19 and particularly keeping up our capacity to do testing and vaccinations as we now vaccinate children um, uh, at a younger age, as we now need to make sure that uh, with the increase in variants um, that we have the capacity to meet people where they are, whether that's mobile testing, whether that's expanded hours, um, whether that's uh, repurposing our facilities to do vaccinations. So now Uh, we went from a $5 million grant from the administration uh, to what is now a $12.5 million grant to do that work. So uh, credit to the administration for being responsive. Uh, We are serving those communities that are high at risk of COVID-19, that are disparately impacted of COVID-19, are those equity targets of the administration. Uh, So it made sense to put that investment in the hands of health centers uh, that are on the front lines of doing the work. Um, Where looking at organizations like Boston Healthcare for the Homeless uh, and their testing sites and the challenge of the communities that they serve that are homeless populations, and uh, some of which are dealing with substance use disorder. Uh, and that critical work, that, the funds that this provides 
will will help them in their COVID response, uh, their testing operations managers and leadership and oversight oversight staff that they utilize to reach out into those populations. And we should make clear for people who haven't heard you say it before, your organization serves, what is it, somewhere in the neighborhood of a million people. Is that not million correct? People, Throughout million people. Million people. One in seven in the state Incredible. of uh, the state of Massachusetts gets their care to, at a health center, and one in two. Every other person in the city of Boston gets their care at one of twenty-two health centers in the city of Boston. I didn't know so, that yes. letter. That's amazing. You know, staying on COVID for one second. I heard a really, I think, disturbing number on NPR when I woke up this morning. Is I think vaccination approval by the FDA and the CDC for vaccination for the youngest kids from six months. I always forget, is it five years old? Whatever it is. The youngest kids is only three weeks uh, in place. However, and I understand that's just the beginning and some pediatricians' offices don't even have it yet. One percent of the eligible kids nationally, this is not, I don't know what the number is here. One percent are vaccinated. Is that something, should one not be deeply troubled by that, or is it just because it's so early on in the process and I'm overreacting like I do to almost everything? <laughs> I do. No, I, mean, I, I know I, I do. I appreciate overreaction because I think we need to <laughs> because it's a pandemic. Um, the, the reality is it's a combination of a lot of factors. It's one, the recent approval uh, to get kids vaccinated, uh, particularly within certain age ranges. And then two, uh, the other issue is the hesitance that we saw among adults. And you and I, Jim, talked about early in this pandemic where people wanted to see the science. They want to understand the science. They wanted to make sure that it came from a trusted advisor, which were physicians in the medical community. We're here again with children uh, and people. And as you and I and all of us on this call know, as, as adults, you know, we're cautious about our health. We're even more cautious about our children. So if you're going to put something in my child's arm, I want to fully understand it. I want to make sure that it's necessary. And we have to message this like we message all immunizations, that we do immunize kids for chicken pox and all other things, that the risk uh, of death is is minimal in some of those uh, cases, um, but the protection is great. Uh, and we need to, to message it the same way that um, though that relatively the risk is different for children, uh, you don't want to take that risk with your child. You don't want your child to be among that number that has a severe case of COVID-19 or long COVID. Uh, um, so you want to make sure they get vaccinated. We're talking to Michael Curry from the League of Community Health Centers and the NAACP. Uh, talking about the, the Supreme Court ruling and abortion, and this is something, of course, you're dealing with significantly here in terms of reproductive care. Uh, how are you beginning to respond, especially as you get this infusion from the, the state as well, about uh, how you go forward with your centers? Well, one, I'm just glad we live in Massachusetts, because when you see some of these ridiculous laws that they're passing now that the Supreme Court has opened the door to it, that restricts a, a woman's right to reproductive health. I'm thankful for Speaker Mariano and uh, Senate President Spoker and Governor Baker uh, and the many legislators who understand the importance of a woman's uh, right to reproductive health. Um, I'm thankful for the Community Health Center movement here in Massachusetts that understands the importance of reproductive health. And no matter what, we'll continue to meet uh, those families and provide care um, the reality is, is in health centers don't provide abortions, but we definitely got uh, provide the services that patients need um, to, to think about what it means to be um, pregnant and what is the, the health risk associated with that. Um, and unfortunately, there are many women across the country now 
uh, who are worried about the criminality now of reproductive health and particularly getting abortions uh, and will be um, potentially um, denied access to those services. And then potentially if they have the resources um, leaving their states to find that care in other places. And again, to your point earlier around health inequity, Jim, this will disparately impact black and brown women across this country. We cannot lose sight of that. Uh, it will have uh, implications for states' budgets. Uh, it will have implications for higher rates of, um, um, of a child, of children that are born unhealthy, as the data shows that unwanted pregnancies, uh, children are being born with higher complications. There are all kinds of things that I don't think anyone thought about as they advocated for an end to, to abortion. Well, you know, speaking of disparate impacts, uh, I'm reading a story uh, in The Globe. I'll read you the first paragraph. This won't be a surprise to you. Black and Hispanic women in the Boston area who delivered babies during the pandemic were less likely than their white counterparts to schedule doctor's appointments after giving birth, according to a recent study from Brigham and Women's Hospital. We're talking about this this morning and saying yet another grotesque uh, uh, example of the kind of disparity we've been talking to you and others about forever. Uh, and then we find out that you actually are doing something about this, not just in your League of Community Health Centers world, but in your seat on the national NAACP. What are you doing, Michael? Yeah, so I, I presented and drafted a resolution for the national NAACP, and I chair the Advocacy and Policy Committee of the National Board, and it calls for action around deferred care. So uh, it is a resolution that speaks to the fact that um, many people – uh, did not seek care over the last two plus years because of COVID. That means the higher rates of diabetes, heart disease, cancer, high blood pressure, name the disease that was impacting black and brown people before this pandemic are now worsened by the fact that they're not getting care. And I think this Brigham's and Women's uh, 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 research uh, underscores that. We need swift and, and definite action on deferred care. Otherwise, we will see more black and brown people sick and dying of disease over the next three to five years uh, when we can do something about it. I, I want to just lift up really quickly Dr. Thea James and the folks at um, uh, Boston Medical Center. Uh, I get to work quite uh, frequently with the health, health, health systems generally, and the hospitals have been doing a lot around maternity health, and they're really taking this different approach of looking at BMC, looking at inequity first, right, a different framework for looking at this, Let's look at the inequity first. Let's figure out what we're doing and what we're doing to contribute to that inequity as hospitals and health centers and others, but BMC's model. And then let's change the systems to, uh, to uh, um, prevent that inequity and prevent the, the outcomes that they're seeing. I think that's disruptive change. Uh, and correct, credit to Dr. Thea James, Trina Martin, and uh, Kate Walsh and the team for, for approaching this very intentionally. BMC is a remarkable place. Before you go, I don't know if you can quantify this. I don't even know if you can answer. Well, you can answer this. What I worry about is every time there is focus, intense focus on something that really matters, like what you've led in the state and city, frankly, on the health and equity issue, is we Americans have the attention span of gnats for the most part. And we move from one thing to another to another. And it seems to me, not that you need my advice, but Jim, give it anyway, is the beauty of this kind of research, like out of Brigham and Women, is when the focus begins to fade, the focus is turned back on the underlying problem, so we can't ignore it, even if we choose to. And I hope what you're doing, I'm sure what you're doing, is to continue to put this right in our faces 
so that those of us, again, who have short attention spans can't have a short attention span on this one. Yeah, you, you've said it before, and you and I have talked about it before, this uh, development of a health equity compact, 50-plus Black and Latinx leaders who've come together to make sure that we center health equity in Massachusetts. We're looking at potentially uh, legislation for the next legislative session that uh, could prioritize funding for communities with high rates of diabetes, heart disease, cancer, looking at um, uh, uh, health equity trends hearing as we have a health equity cost trends hearing, but a health equity trends hearing where we get folks that have to come before the, the state and really explain what they're doing around health equity. Um, Jim, the only way that we'll keep the focus on this is if we who have lived experience require that we keep the focus on it. And I'm excited and encouraged because we have more Black and Latinx and Asian and other people of color in health and business leadership in this city and state than we've ever had. You're going to come back from vacation and work on this. Is that right? Or is it <laughs> you are coming back, right? I'm, I'm getting off this call and getting on a health equity compact from vacation. Fair enough. I'll call right after this. Michael, we really appreciate, in all seriousness, you squeezing into your vacation, which you surely do need. Michael, talk to you soon. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you both. Great to see you. Thank you. Great to see you. Enjoy the rest of your vacation. Michael Curry is the president and CEO of the Mass League of Community Health Centers. He's also chair of the NAACP's Advocacy and Policy Committee, and he served on Governor Baker's COVID-19 Vaccine Advisory Committee. Well, coming up, dysfunction at the T is nothing new, but it's feeling more urgent than ever. Transportation advocates Jim Aloisi and Stacey Thompson weigh in next. This is Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy, Jared Bowen sitting in for Marjorie. She's back Monday. We are, we're at the library and we're streaming at youtube.com slash GBH News. Train derailments, staffing shortages, longer wait times, forget transparency. Safe to say this summer has not been kind to riders of the T. Joining us now to discuss is our transit team, Jim Aloisi and Stacey Thompson. Stacey is executive director of the Liberal Streets Alliance. Jim is former transportation secretary for the state. He's on the board of Transit Matters and a contributor to Commonwealth Magazine. Stacey is the library. Jim is globetrotting as he is every time he's on the show. Jim, where are you today, if I may ask? Can I ask or no? You can ask. I'm, I'm in. I'm in an undisclosed location. I figured. In the state of. No, I'm, in, I'm actually in Maine, um, oh, well, so not that far. That's modest. Well, it's good to see you both. Thanks so much for Thank being you. here. I was going Thank to say you. that's a well-appointed bunker you're in. So at least you have that going. It's for a well-appointed bunker, and I have my East Boston is not an airport poster behind me. So. I'm, <laughs> So let's talk about the, the latest rash of woes and add to what Jim just listed that T employees were working 20 hours straight with barely a break before coming back on shift, lapsed certifications. I mean, it's just endless now what we're learning about the T. Stacey, we'll start with you. What do you make of everything that we're learning about this system? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm going to say what I've been saying to everyone, which is that this is obviously disappointing, but it is not surprising to those of us who've been following this for a long time. Um, you know, last fall, folks like me were at the State House saying, look, we need you to hold hearings. We're concerned. There have been a number of incidents, and we've watched this happen over and over again. You have patterns of safety incidences when you're not well-staffed, when you have been you know, under-investing in the operating budget. I think what is more troubling is the information that we learned that it appears that the Baker administration has been holding back information. And that really comes down to what Jim and I have been calling for for years now, which is significantly more transparency and accountability when it comes to the T. Um, Jim, I'm sure you've got other thoughts too. <laughs> what are your, what, you know, what gets your big reaction? Then I want to return to the lack of transparency, which sure. has put me right over the edge, Jim. Well, the big reaction is, unfortunately, as Stacy said, I mean, none of this is a surprise. I do think that we have an unusual sort of uh, parade of unfortunate circumstances coming one after another. That's a little unusual, but it may not, you know, and hopefully it's not the norm. But the fundamental lack of resources at the T that goes back decades and that persists uh, is reaping a, a very poor harvest for everybody right now. And at a time when we should be building back better from the pandemic, at a time when we should be encouraging more use of transit for any number of reasons, uh, the transit system is finding itself um, really prevented by lack of resources and by uh, this accumulation of events from responding to the moment the way it should. And this is going to have, I think, uh, massive negative implications for our overall recovery if we don't turn it around quickly. Because they're um, basically sending a message, it seems to me, unintended, but a message. You know that thing that Stacey Thompson and Jim Aloisi say to us all the time, ride the T? you got to be crazy. Yeah. I mean, they're not yeah. honest with us. They're derailments. There's a guy who's dragged to his death. And even if one, I had this discussion with you on TV, even if somebody like you, Jim, considers it safe, it's not exactly a message that the average person who's sort of on the fence saying, should I listen to them and ditch this car and spend more time on the tee? Who in their right mind is going to do this? Not to mention yeah. that it's now more, uh, it's less reliable than ever as it slows down the system to address all of these changes. Yeah, so I'm going to try to be optimistic, even though we're all mad right now. And I'm so mad about this. So um, I took the tea here today. I talked to folks. You left home last night at 7 p.m. <laughs> yes. too. You forgot to tell yes. us that part. Uh, yeah. I took the tea here today. It was a good ride. I talked to folks who are inside the tea on a near daily basis. And I think I can say with confidence that most folks who are working for the system know what they're doing, are working hard, and it continues to be safe. Um, we have a leadership problem, and we don't need to be polite about it. We don't need to pretend it's not a problem. The way the Baker administration has handled this is entirely unacceptable, and the hearings that the legislature is about to have are part of that, but the legislature cannot be left off the hook on this one. They have been underfunding the T for many years now. We have been asking for them to pay attention to these problems to offer oversight as well. This is not just uh, an issue of the general manager. It's certainly not. It's not an issue of Charlie Baker. It is a leadership gap that needs to be addressed. You know, I, I know you're both mentioning money. You want to talk about money. We're going to get to money in a minute because I want mm -hmm. to talk about transparency. This story by Taylor Dolvin yeah. 
in the yeah. globe about these three derailments, you know, not with human beings on it in the yards or something, is grotesque. And by the way, good all credit to former Globey Bruce Mull, who edits, is the editor of Commonwealth, the great <laughs> Commonwealth magazine, for being mm-hmm. relentless on this thing. I mean, it's a cover-up. It's not, I'm not trying to be overly rhetorical. It's a cover-up. No, cover it's a cover-up. Wait a second here. And you put that on top of the article that I can never read enough. When the Globe had four bulleted items, this was on um, June 13th, after the Federal Transit Administration announced that it had serious problems with the safety of the system, they list the four things. First, the FTA told the T to adequately staff its operations. The Globe asked the T's spokesman, what about that? Joe Pastoro, he declined to release the numbers. The next one, the FTA told the T to put protections in place to prevent safety incidents at rail yards. The spokesman declined to say how many safety incidents. I mean, let me tell you how I react. When a public agency, Jim Eloise, who used to run one, refuses to tell me the truth, the conclusion I read is they're hiding something from me because they know if I knew the truth, even if this is not right, if I knew the truth, I would not use what they provide. Is that an unreasonable conclusion no, to draw? It's not. Like, can I? So let me just say, having had the job as secretary some years ago, this is not unique to the Baker administration. This is endemic to most gubernatorial administrations, and that is staff people who really believe sincerely that they have the right to control and run the government, to tell secretaries what to say and do, to tell general managers what to say and do. And what they don't seem to care about is that they tell Steve Povtak what his communications people have to say. He's the general and manager. They, of don't the care team. That, they don't care 10 days later that Steve has to go in front of the press with his tail between his legs and actually say the truth, right? Because that's not how it works. What this represents, in my judgment, is as clear an example of failure of the governance structure of the T. Right? We keep talking, the legislature keeps changing T boards. The T governance structure, which, which puts all of the power in the governor in the state, is just wrong for the MBTA. And the legislature needs, with the new governor, to revisit it. Now, if you look around the country, many of the high-functioning transit systems are not necessarily run by state governments. They're run at the municipal level or the county level, where they have strong counties. Some of them are elected. But they're generally hybrids or, or independent of states. We need to see this as an example of gubernatorial micromanagement by staff people who are not in the trenches, who are not generally experienced in transit planning or policy, and the result is that they're undermining the, uh, the, the T. And let me just say, if anyone's been in government for eight years and doesn't understand that what they put in an email is soon going to be made public. That's, that's what, what Jared I, said this morning. That's what I said this yeah, morning. I don't, know, yeah, I don't know what they're thinking. Stacey, I wanted to turn to your anger about this. And let's break down the anatomy of this so people completely understand what the Globe yeah. has presented here, which was there were active questions from media about derailments that they had got wind of. And we see very transparently... Ironically, the, the, now the, the communication, don't answer this question. Answer it this way. Don't acknowledge right. this. Yeah. Don't confirm that. So as these hearings get convened, what do you expect to come? Can something come out of them? 
Yes. So I just want to go back and bump uh, what was said earlier. We only have this information, basic information about the FTA investigation and these derailments because of the reporting of Taylor Dolvin. So I think we need to be grateful for the great and reporting Bruce and Bruce Small and others who have just been really, really relentlessly digging at this because we wouldn't have this information to even have these conversations without a free media. Um, having said that, I completely agree. It is uh, shocking. Um, I think that the hearings are a first step. I you know, we're going to get more information, but what I think I'm looking for from the legislature, from the, the two co-chairs that are leading this, are action steps, right? Are they going to appoint an independent oversight commission for the T? Are they going to flex resources? Are they going to implement something else, right? We need, we don't need a dog and pony show. We don't need, you know, days of hearings for them to... Which they so often are. <laughs> yeah, we need action from the legislature. And I also just want to pull in something else because around transparency. I think everyone is looking at the gubernatorial campaign and saying, eh, we kind of think we know who's going to win and we're not thinking about it. We have other statewide campaigns that could make a difference. We need to be paying attention to the state auditor race because that role, that office has a role in transparency and accountability. Uh, Secretary of State is also a hot race right now. And I feel like we are not talking about how these sleeper candidacies, these sleeper um, offices can play a role around fixing the accountability and transparency issues in the state in the next, um, in, in 2023. By the way, if you'd taken a dog and pony, you probably would have gotten here faster. <laughs> so Jim Aloisi, <laughs> Governor Baker is going to be here on July 21st. I assume what he's going to say when Marjorie or I repeat your words about underfunding, before I finish the sentence, he's going to say, I have invested $8 billion in the T, more than anybody who sat in this office before me. What's the response to that? Well, it's not an assertion. He but, has invested $8 billion. Sure. What's the answer? So the answer is uh, investing capital dollars is great. But if you can't spend those capital dollars as wisely or quickly as you want to because you don't have an operating budget that's adequate to hire and train the skilled professionals who will actually project, manage, and do the job, then all you're doing is treading water, right? Now, the governor, to his credit, I think a week ago, was quoted Lisa Kaczynski from Politico, asked him a question, and he responded, and he said, "Um, yeah, I'm going to... uh, address the operating budget issue. I don't know what he mean, means by that. You might ask him that specific question because that's actually a good sign that this message is broken through to the governor's office. You might also ask him if he's going to send the, the MBTA chapter in the book he wrote with Kadish for revision. <laughs> uh, you do you want to just do the interview or do you want to just send me? <laughs> yeah, bring, know, us, just, bring us on in. We'll do it for you. to Jim Aloisi and <laughs> Stacey Thompson. So what's your response to the funding thing that about... Again, factually accurate, $8 billion has been invested yeah. in the hard, the, the capital side. Of the I'm going to use the same analogy that I use over and over again. Uh, Charlie Baker inherited an old house that needed repairs. He put a new roof on the house, but he hasn't been paying the bills for the last eight years. Right? And so if you haven't been paying for the electricity, if you haven't been paying for the general maintenance, the house is still going to fall apart. And so I think you can say, yes, he's done some things, but was it, um, was it enough demonstrably no. And it's tough, right? I mean, Jim Aloisi knows this. Any politician who's been a two-term governor, they're going to make mistakes. They're not going to be perfect. But he has been received... We we have submitted 30 different reports saying you are underfunding the team. Yeah, but can I, can I right? respond to you both? I'm sorry to interrupt. It, we... Charlie Baker came in to studio to lead a discussion we had with uh, Juliet Kayyem and her new book 
a couple of months ago. And the discussion they got into, which I loved because something I've been obsessed with for years, is the desire of elected officials to get immediate return on their uh, uh, financial <laughs> commitments. You know, for example, why don't we fix the pension system? Because there's no immediate impact. And by the time people see an impact, it's 30 years from now, that doesn't benefit me. The thing I don't understand about the Baker decision, starting with you, Jim, is if I had to choose one of the two, if my concern was making my constituents happy, it wouldn't be the capital end of the budget, which is much harder to see. It'd be the operational end, so that people like us can't complain about the fact that there's less reliable, less frequent service. Why was that decision made in your estimation? I think because it's politically more difficult to do. Because when you're raising money for the capital budget, you're raising basically borrowed money, right? It's in the bond bill. And you're going to the private markets and you're putting bonds out and, and you're using basically private investment capital to pay for this stuff. So it's easy. You're not asking the taxpayer to do more. I see. But the operating budget, right, the operating budget, that's pay-as-you-go. That's funded by fares, by sales tax, by actual money that people spend. And so politically, it's very, very different, very, very difficult. And I think that is the, the one and only and chief answer to that question. People and the optics of saying, I spent $8 billion sounds great. It's the politically easy thing to do. But it is only uh, half of the equation. And now we're dealing with the fact that we'd have to, you know, I just want to say one other thing. The FMCB of late memory, this is not quite a money issue, but a Baker issue. It, le it left a pretty good legacy and a lot of things left undone initiatives. If you look at what has been left undone and untouched from the former FMCB by this current board, it's basically almost everything. What does I mean, that stand for? Financial Management Control Board? What is fiscal, that fiscal, fiscal Management, management Control board, board, right? And so okay. something that could have been an important positive legacy for this administration has been left to lie fallow by this new board that doesn't seem to care or be interested in following up on really worthy initiatives, right? The, a Better City put out a report on, on what's, what's happening and what's not happening. And uh, I think it's where people focus on that as well. There's a lot that needs to happen. But again, on the side, politicians, unfortunately, will generally always take the path of least resistance, which means the operating budget gets underfunded. Okay, right? so and I have, can I say one last thing I want to direct to you, Stacey, and especially on this issue, since you mentioned the legislature shouldn't be off the hook. For people who want to blame Charlie Baker for all this, the legislature has enough votes to override anything exactly. that the, go the Republican governor does. If the Democratic legislature decides before or after hearings, we got to do what Aloisi and Thompson say to us in terms of, uh, I'm serious, funding yeah. of the operating budget, they could do it. Charlie Baker could say, I don't have the money. I'm going to veto it, assuming he would for argument's sake. I don't know if he would. And they could override the veto and it would become law, correct? Yes, exactly. And I actually have been saying right now, as angry as I am at Charlie Baker, I am more angry at the legislature. And a good example of the inaction that we're seeing is the House. The House just passed a transportation bond bill. Um, just a reminder, last session, they also passed a bond bill, the House and the Senate, and it included a low-income fare provision that the governor vetoed. We have been waiting for a year and a half for them to simply pass the thing they passed last year. They not only did not include it in this year's bond bill, when Adrian Madero added a, um, uh, an amendment, they he's rejected. A state rep. Yeah, he's a state rep. 
They rejected the amendment. So what we are seeing is that they have actually moved something forward that is um, is less progressive. They've taken a Why? step back. Why? I don't know. I think we need to ask them, right? So we are, we're now leaving it to the Senate to hopefully pick up the pieces and add something for low-income riders. But this is something that this, the legislature should do, must do. Our essential riders are still on this service. The service still sucks and is getting worse, and they can't afford to get on the train. And the legislature isn't doing even the tiniest thing, even the tiniest thing for riders right now. Um, and they have the power to override that veto. So I think it's one example, and I know it, it doesn't feel connected to safety, but it is uh, you know, demonstrative of a larger issue where they have the power and they're not using it. All right, should we take a look? I want to echo that. I want to echo that. I just don't want anybody to think Stacey is alone in thinking that the legislature is fully and wholly uh, a part of the problem here, and they need to change that. Right, for, for, for a little sorbet to this conversation, we'll depart for a second to talk about open streets. Oh, great, great. <laughs> Get people off the subway, the, never, the, the not moving subway, out onto the streets. We were reminded of this just around the corner here from the Boston Public Library where there was an experiment to close down Dartmouth Street and turn it into kind of like a European-style pavilion. With, and it was great, With art way. and great. food. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so it's coming up again. Uh, Jamaica Plain is the next spot uh, this coming Sunday, I believe. And JP, yes. August so, 6th, Blue Hill Ave in Roxbury, su- uh, Saturday, September 24th, Ave. And by the way, it used to be just Newbury Street right. for the last yep. few years, but they're going out to the neighborhoods. So how's ex- this, uh, is it, are we still considering this a pilot or an experiment? How's it going so far? You know, I think that this is classically the kind of pilot that's just going to become permanent, right? <laughs> there is a, an overwhelming amount of excitement. I live in Jamaica Plain. I will be out all day Sunday and encourage people to join us. You can walk or bike there. You could take transit, but you can walk or bike. Um, And I think that there's just a lot of joy. And I think everyone needs some joy right now in their lives, needs to enjoy our streets. So I think we will only see an expansion after this summer um, because as as you noted, right outside the library, it was pure joy for days. (laughs) We talked to Mayor Wu about this the other day and we said, what's the assessment? thing that's going on vis-a-vis the Dartmouth Street uh, up to the church from the library to the church closing. And she says, she, I mean, obviously she likes it. It was her idea, but they're doing an analysis now. Is this city, which often seems to be locked in the past when it comes to mm. behaviors, Jim Aloisi, you've been here around a little bit. Is it ready yeah, to do bit. something that much of the rest of the world, including my hometown of Philadelphia, has done in lots of spots? Is it ready for this? Uh, the city it, it, leadership, I don't mean the... Yeah, the yeah. I think so. I think we have an extraordinary mayor and a strong city council that is understanding that the way we build a stronger, modern 21st century city coming out of the pandemic is to reimagine and rethink the urban public realm, the urban streetscape, the neighborhood streetscape, to encourage people to, to do more healthy activities to support small businesses that thrive when there's more foot traffic on the street, right? And so they get it. I think the people of the city get it. And it's it's a great time to be a Bostonian, to witness what I think is going to be, frankly, a moment of important inflection where the city is embracing the 21st century really for the first time and getting the recovery from the pandemic right and by right, I mean from an urban public realm perspective, reimagining what it looks like and how it functions. It's probably the biggest transformation from that design's 
perspective that we've had in well over a century. So it's a great thing. By the way, and again, if you didn't go to this Dartmouth Street thing or you haven't been to Newbury Street in past years, Newbury will be August, I think. Shouldn't have the dates yet when uh, Michelle Wu, when she's with us. Go to, one, to JP or Roxbury or uh, Dorchester on these uh, days in July, August, and September. It is just transformational. It's mm-hmm. wonderful. We have a minute or two left. I don't want to get in the usual fight with you about uh, cyclists. But you do. But I am. <laughs> you know, by the way, every time you and I have this, I get so much hate text, tweets. Uh, and I, I, I want to be clear here. I, I want common ground. I am not. I do. I do. <laughs> Having said that, there was just litigation filed by those who think the uh, the cycle lanes in Cambridge mm-hmm. went too far. The judge denied an injunction. The plaintiffs not only want no more cycle uh, lanes, uh, segregated lanes. They want uh, the lanes that were created to be gotten rid of. Here's my analysis to you, because you and I are like so far apart. Even though I'd like to think I'm in the middle on this, if compromise is not reached in Cambridge, mm-hmm. the desire of the Stacey Thompsons of the world to expand what is being experimented on in Cambridge is going to begin and end there. There is such animosity between the players, regardless of who has the right position, that it seems, again, whatever we do in Cambridge is never going to be translated anywhere. Be- uh, 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 transfer it anywhere because elected officials are going to say, I don't want to be involved in this fight, even if it's a good idea. Why aren't people like you urging leaders who are respected to convene players on both sides rather than going to court and suing to try to cut some sort of compromise? So we are actually doing that. So, and I think that this isn't a both sides. It's not a, the the Stacey Thompson's of the world. I shouldn't have put it that way. No, but, but I think that that's how this is often framed. And the folks that I represent are people who don't own cars, uh, working parents, people who need walking, biking and transit Mm -hmm. options who frankly don't have the money to go frivolously sue government. So it is not a one-to-one. It is about those who need access to the public space in order to live and exist in a community. And so uh, there has been an enormous amount of work to bring various folks to the table. And, by you whom? Know, by the city, by my team, who have literally been on the ground in Cambridge talking to people in the street, talking to everyday folks, hundreds of everyday folks mm-hmm. on Mass Ave in Cambridge. Um, and that work is happening. I don't... I, I think... Um, you know, we were told the same thing 15 years ago when we started Livable Streets. Why are you bothering? You're never going to get that paint down and look at the city. I, I think that there are always people who are going to have freak out when their access to a free public space to store their vehicle is going to happen. And we need to move past that because this is about equity and it's about making sure that everyone has access and can use our public streets. And I want you to know to, yeah. to prove there is progress. Then we got a break. I actually walked two whole blocks to Flower <gasps> Bakery the other day. And you know why? Did you survive? Because of you, Stacey. I want <laughs> you to know. You two blocks. Next time, you can bike. Jim Aloisi, right. Stacey Thompson, as always, it's great to see you. Thanks for your time. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Stacey Thompson is executive director of the Livable Streets Alliance. Jim Aloisi is former transportation secretary for Massachusetts on the board of Transit Matters and a contributor to Commonwealth Magazine. Coming up, our tech expert Andy Anatko says new technology for AI-generated art could, quote, revolutionize, revolutionize visual creativity. I can't say it because the arts editor might have something to say about this. He'll tell us about it right after this break. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH.
Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy, Jared Bowen sitting in for Marjorie. She's back Monday. We're live at the Boston Public Library. Uh, before we start, by the way, we're about a 30-plus minutes away from some fabulous music. If you're not here, I would go out of my way if I were you and join us for the last a half hour of the show. And secondly, just to bring you up to speed, when uh, former federal judge Nancy Gertner was here with us at 1130, that was when Joe Biden was expected to sign the executive order doing as much as he could, according to him, by executive order to protect the a right to reproductive freedom in this uh, country. He didn't uh, take to the podium until about noon. But here is sort of the centerpiece of what he had to say uh, describing the executive order he was about to sign. I'm signing this important executive order. I'm asking the Justice Department that much like they did in the civil rights era to do something, do everything in their power to protect these women seeking to invoke their rights. In states where clinics are still open, to protect them from intimidation, to protect the right of women to travel from state that prohibits seeking the medical attention that she needs to a state to provide that care. To protect the woman's right to the FDA approved, the Federal Drug Administration approved medication that's been available for over 20 years. That was uh, the essence of what he had to say. There was obviously a lot more he urged people to vote, too, which I assume most people were thinking about even before they heard from the president. Uh, For now, though, joining us in person to explain the latest news in AI advancements and online privacy is our authority on the subject. That would be Andy Anatko. Andy's a tech writer and blogger. You can check out his work at anatko.com. That's I-H-N-A-T-K-O. Or follow him on Twitter at at Anatko. And I don't think we've seen him in person in about four or five years. It is great to see you, Andy. How are you? so great. I'm so happy to be here. I I just wish that the MBTA hadn't changed the commuter rail schedule so they have to get up an extra hour and a half early. That's usually a very expensive hour and a half for some Perfect timing for that comment. Andy, it's great to see you. <laughs> great yes, to be here. Great to be with you, Andy. Actually, that was a perfect segue, what we just heard from the president, into something we want to ask you about, which is location data probably now more matters now more than ever because of the way that women can be traced for visiting uh, reproductive centers. Uh, and going forward, as we know, things are shifting dramatically about where they can go and how there might be... Um, condemnation later, or there could be criminal uh, liability there. So where is Google entering into this? Because we do know our locations are tracked, our movements tracked. And and it's becoming even more dangerous because uh, law enforcement are using some pretty offensive tools now that they know that, hey, everyone's carrying, carrying a phone, that phone is transmitting location data uh, to Google and other services, they, they actually have these things, you're not going to believe it, called geofence warrants, where they can, the cops can say, you know what, I have no idea who might be committing a crime at this location, or if any crimes are being committed at this location, but what the heck, let's just subpoena uh, Google to say, give us the identifiable device IDs of everyone who was at this location, passed through this location, or near this location on a certain date. So you can imagine that if a litigation or uh, prosecution-happy state decided that we want to make, a, make an election campaign out of this. We want to find as many women who are seeking abortions as possible and get them as many of them arrested and in jail as possible. This leaves them really, really vulnerable. But they did make, the day after Roe was reversed, they did make a very important policy change that will hopefully make that a lot harder. And so what, what should we be mindful of, first of all, and, mm-hmm. and how quickly 
do they erase that data? I mean, yeah, well, what, what do we have what, to be aware of? What they decided to do is that, uh, obviously, they, they do track you wherever you go. However, they announced that uh, in the coming weeks, they're going to be adjusting all their policies so that if, uh, if any Google user uh, or any Google track person uh, visits a location that Google knows is a place where you might want extra privacy, uh, it, will automatic, it, it will automatically be deleted, that data, within a short interval of time. And it's not only uh, uh, abortion clinics, but it's also fertility centers, counseling centers, domestic violence shelters, addiction fit, uh, treatment, even cosmetic surgery uh, clinics where you, you don't want people to be able to, you know, in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a duck hunt, find out something that is very, very personal and private. So they, will have, they, they can't avoid collecting it, but the point is that they will delete it so that even if the cops do subpoena them, and they are very good at fighting subpoenas, uh, they're forced to hand over data. This data will not be included because they will not have it. Does delete really mean delete? I mean, uh, uh, I, what's a good example? When they were talking about seizing the phone of the former Justice Department lawyer, I think this is the case, a couple of weeks ago, which they actually did, uh, one of the things that an FBI official said on CNN, what's the value of doing it there as opposed to the, through the phone company or, or the company through which they get their service, is the ability to access deleted texts and things is immense, said the experts. So back to my question, what does delete mean uh, in real terms? In Google's terms, it simply means that the data that a police uh, investigation would try to subpoena from them does not exist, so they are Gone forever. Uh, there's, a, there, there's a little bit of weasel language in there, but uh, if they were trying to be deceptive about actually having data they could share with the police, that would be pretty evil of them, so I don't believe so. But you do have a really good point. This Shocking. doesn't solve the problem. <laughs> it just plugs one hole in the sieve. Uh, for, so, for, like, for instance, uh, there's been a lot of discussion about uh, a lot of women who use health apps that, yeah, uh, that track their periods. And uh, a couple of uh, reporters that I know who are women did a really exhaustive investigation of the privacy policies of a lot of these apps, and they concluded that there just are no apps where uh, a, a police action could not simply subpoena information to find out, well, what was, what was your self-recorded cycle like during this period? Uh, Apple Health is the closest uh, because they, Apple is paramount security, paramount privacy. But even there, you have to know how this stuff works and know that, gee, if I'm having my phone backed up to iCloud, uh, suddenly all that stuff is unencrypted and in the open. And so a subpoena could reveal that information. It's really tricky. You've just made me realize that we're talking about Google here, but are there just myriad organizations that are collecting our location data? So Google, Everywhere. Google may shut it down, but you can be tracked anywhere else. Imagine a really, really virulent prosecutor. Uh, or even a private group that really wants to stick it to people that they don't like. There's nothing stopping them from parking a van with an automated license plate scanner exactly on right. a public street where will automatically record every license plate that visits or comes through a certain location, and then that becomes their data. There are also d data collection companies that for a couple of hundred bucks will sell you location data on pretty much everybody because it's not just Apple, it's not just Google. I do, and I do believe that they try very, very hard to make their products useful without collecting more information than they absolutely need to do. But it's all these little, little, tiny, weaselly companies that are harvesting data from apps. It's just terrible. So what's the stop? I don't want to belabor this, but what's the stop, uh, uh, Governor Abbott, for example, from the state of Texas directly contracting with what you just called these little Weasley companies and hire one little Weasley company at whatever key checkpoints there are, uh, pay them with state funds and collect the data and then 
turn it over to prosecutors. Nothing. And it's even worse than you think because as, when you talk about getting data from Apple and Google, they have to have a court order. They have to come to a judge and say, yes, we're demanding this data. Uh, and there are rules for that kind of data. However, there's nothing preventing cops, the FBI, anybody from simply buying data right, that's available right. on the open market. They don't need a warrant. They don't need to prove that there's a reason for it. It's the, it's, this is the Wild West of United States policy about data privacy. There is none. Health data is protected. Nothing else is protected in any way, shape, or form. Okay, so let's move to what should have been or should be a light and wonderful <laughs> happier, topic. Happier but it news. appears that you're going to end up in a debate with executive arts editor Jared Bowen. A couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago, two months ago, you exposed Marjorie and me to, for the first time to this AI-created art thing. I don't even remember what it was called. That's, how, that's how much it what resonated. Was it what, was it called? what was it called? This is an album called Dolly 2, but there were a right. bunch of companies that are making it. It was like stunning. First of all, before you two get into a discussion about this, explain what it is, what it does, and how it works. It's very, very simple. You're, thinking, you're going to think I'm dumbing it down, but it is literally this. Describe a picture that you want to see in simple, plain English. This artificial intelligence system and this machine learning app will make a brand new picture that conforms to that description. And it's not, it's not like it's going to be doing Google image search and say, well, he wanted a horse. So here's a picture of a horse. Great. We'll cut out the horse. You could, I've been playing with these for the past two months, trying to make it fail and trying to find the weaknesses. You, will, you can generate 10 copies, 100 copies of the same picture. You will not see the same images. Okay, both. give a, command, a sample command so that people understand what you're talking about. Uh, well, like, uh, <laughs> okay, I'll, gi I'll give you one using this, this really cool free version that just, just, just hit. Uh, I was testing it by saying, uh, I want to see a a portrait of a young woman wearing virtual reality glasses uh, in the style of one of my favorite artists, Egon Schiele. And this you could say in the style of a particular artist. You can say, I want this to be, you can, again, plain English. Say, I want to see, another one I tried, a Fenway Park made out of gingerbread, but I want it to be not photorealistic. I want it to look like a child's book illustration. And the more detail you give it, uh, the more closely it will hew to what you gave it. And the, now the, the private ones that are being researched by Google and uh, OpenAI, they're super, super powerful. They are so good. You would not question this is a photograph. You would not so question... What are we, could you put that back up on the screen again, what we saw a minute ago? Right. With, uh, yeah, what are we looking at there? So this is a... This is a, uh, a a junior version of this. Like, I, I just want to quickly point out that the really good ones that could fool people, Google, for instance, just did a blog post saying, look, we're working on this. The results are great, but there are ethical concerns we really need to take a look at. We also need to make sure that there aren't any cultural biases. Like, if someone says, I want a, a, picture, a photo of a, of, a, of a thief robbing a bank, is it going to be a person of color more often than that sort of stuff? But this is the junior version. This is called Crayon, C-R-A-I-Y-O-N. If you go to my Twitter account, I've already posted a link to it. And you just, it's just a web app. You don't need to install anything. Uh, you just, uh, the description is just a portrait of a young woman wearing virtual reality goggles painted in the style of Egon Schiele. And, and that's free. You, that's free. And it gave you, and it, as, as you see, it gave you nine different versions uh, to choose from. And okay, you, Jared Bone, what's your problem? Well, first of all, you fight fiercely, Andy Anako, because Egon <laughs> Schiele is also one of my favorite artists. I oh, had not okay. seen that, and it's pretty incredible, although I can see where this issue of theft certainly comes into play, because it looks like you're appropriating an well, Egon Schiele image point. and putting these virtual reality oh, yeah. goggles. So when I did the experiment this morning, I, t I typed in dog in an amusement park, and I got a p bunch of pictures that I think are just, they're just not my taste. <laughs> uh, but my question is why? I want you to imagine 
how many people, how many kids were editing film and video when we were kids in the 70s and 80s, and how many are doing it now? That's because uh, there, are two, there are two elements to almost any type of creative endeavor. There's the creative part where here's something in my head that I want to translate to a real thing. And then there's the work that's just technical work. And the reason why you have kids that are making brilliant videos on their phones but is they're because... they're making them. No, no, no but uh, here's, okay. here's, what, I'm, here's okay. what I'm getting to. It strips away the technical stuff of this by saying that, no, I don't need to... If I want to cut this scene, all you do is select it and delete. I don't have to razor cut it. I don't have to match them back together. I don't have to match the sound. And to my point of view, and I agree that this is a really good topic for an extended debate, uh, imagine you, ha- you, you don't know how to paint, but you have this idea in your head. And imagine you're not just simply t- accepting what the app gives you. Uh, one, of my, one, of my biggest, one of my experiments was uh, I wanted to do the same thing, but with Edward, Edward Hopper. And it wasn't getting it quite right. So I was changing, I was basically saying, okay, you, essentially, you got that right, but uh, sh- there should be just one window, but really bright lighting. And the woman should be actually sitting on the edge of the bed, not That's on the incredible. bed. So now imagine spending two hours refining these things, where it stops being, hey, I, I, I rubbed the magic lamp and the genie gave me this free image. And now it really is something that did not exist and conforms to exactly the picture inside your head, except... Again, I, there's, there are wonderful things to knowing how the tools work and knowing how paint works and how to mix paint and how yeah. to create impasto. A lot of wonderful things. But, but, but all that's the... a different thing. I mean, right, exactly. I, I mean, so, yeah, I'm strong. I don't know one hundredth as much about any of this as well, either of you do. not necessarily about that, but, it's but, just, what, but uh, for me, it's about how it resonates. And so I, as we're talking about this, I'm thinking of David Hockney, Hockney super sure. well-known artist who has really turned to painting via the iPad. But he is doing this himself, whereas this I, I still don't comprehend. So, yes, you're typing in cues to have a computer make the art for you. And I can understand that it could be a tool for storyboarding. Go back to the film analogy and suddenly it helps and it's there and it's visual for you. If you don't necessarily have the artistic capability yourself, I certainly don't. So I would need to do that. But if we're talking about looking to AI or computer-generated art to stand the test of time or to be in gallery walls, or uh, this is where it starts to lose me because there, I, there's no emotional connection to this whatsoever. Yeah. Well, th- imagine the, the Salvador Mundi, that auction for $450 million. Yes. And you can get lots of Allegedly of... Pl- painted by Leonardo. Exactly, by, by Da Vinci. And people see this, oh my God, this really is the savior. I'm having an emotional moment. Would it be ruined if you said, actually... There's a lot of controversy. We don't know for sure that Leonardo da Vinci actually touched this at all. We think that at, it's likely he did the eyes and the face, and he had studio assistants do the rest of the body. Now, is this a lesser thing? Is the emotional impact that I'm feeling when I see this cheapened or lessened by the fact that it's not necessarily an autograph work? Is a Jeffrey Koons piece not good to people who like that stuff because he has a studio of 100 people who basically does his stuff? That's actually his philosophy. He thinks that I want my idea to be pure. If I'm manipulating the steel to paint myself, I'm going to change my mind as I go through it. How about that one? I respect your opinion, though. (laughs) Jim wants me to fall here. No, I like that one. But no, I can see your point because I I argue that we should go in and look at art without looking at the wall label and the text to not have that context first. So it shouldn't matter to you who it was painted by or uh, what is coming in there but I, I just look at these images and but I, I know the context here right uh, you know the images but what's that the, I but, wait, wait, but can you stay on his point for a second what's the difference between the image generated by AI and the image generated by the intern who works for the brilliant uh, uh, conceiver of ideas oh, way, way, who, for instance uh, what's what's the difference well, then it's past information. It's coming from the same workshop. It's a shared experience. You see the hand of the creator in this experience, whereas this popped up on my screen in a second after the three minutes of producing the image appeared. 
when I go to a museum and I encounter a, period, a piece of art or I go out onto the street and I come across a piece of art, there, I, I know... Uh, well, no, I, but, you're going but, back to the context. I, I, under, I completely understand what you're saying, but I, I think it just ruins it for me yeah. to, to understand that this came from software, which is so cold and chilling. By the way, this to, is the guy who yesterday... Oh, this is Jared. With, <laughs> if you were listening, yes, this is the guy with Chris Vermeuther from The Globe who is... <laughs> reveling in the fact that there were $175 million avatars of ABBA and their four <laughs> members created for a show in London. But wasn't they, isn't the hand of the artists there? Because yeah. they created Well, the hand it's, of the artist, Andy Anatko, is there. I'm serious. Yeah. Is there too? It came out of his head. But it's there. He just didn't yeah. do the execution. I just feel it's different. I'm, I, I want to ask you, I'm not baiting you. I'm asking Bait him. Bait I'm, him, I'm, please. No. I can, I can take it. I'm not I'm good at this. How do you feel about Jackson Pollock's splatter art? Where he doesn't know where he knows vaguely where it's going to go, but it's gravity and the physics of liquids that actually makes the image. Just That's not his creation. He doesn't have a lot of control over it. You would say that even the lack of control he gave to the process is part of the vibrance of the motion of these images. But I would argue that he very much knew what he was doing, and there was full-on intent there. Okay. I, I grant there's full-on intent here too, but uh, it, for me, the distinction is knowing, I guess, knowing the context. And knowing Who's, what's the name of the from? guy that makes the glass sculptures that hang from the ceiling? Dale He's Chihuly. out of Seattle. What Dale Chihuly. Yeah, I was there. I was at the thing in Seattle. Exactly like this yep. artist. Mm. He has all these kids. I don't mean to disparage the kids working for him. He comes up with a concept, and they do and the sculpting. And a lot of the Renaissance paintings we look at, it's the right. same thing. It is? Absolutely. Oh. Yep, exactly. It's the, it's the studios that right. put these. They're in right. the business of making and selling art. You have right. the one master who comes up with the ideas. He has doesn't have time to make everything himself. I guess, I guess one of the biggest breaks, and this is where this continues to be interesting, is that I see the AI, the tool, as the extension of the hand of the creator. Just like, uh, just like uh, again, if you're doing a, if one of the masters is painting through an iPad, he's never touched that. He's never touched that image at all. He is he is letting layers of software between his fingertip or an Apple pencil and interpretive algorithms to figure out the swoosh that he's doing there. How how should the software interpret how it goes? And he's free to say no, that's no good. Undo. Let's do that again. Or he's free to say, you know what? I'm gonna. Die. I, I like the brush strokes that this other person has in his art. He's, this is actually a commercial brush that I can install in this app. I'm going to spend 100 bucks and get it because I want that tool. Just like there, there was a time when all oil painters mixed their own paint from, from pigment and oil. But then you could get tubes of art, of, of paint. But look at how much time you... I, I, wait, I wait, promise wait. I'll end I'm after this. No, this, you can I'll, do this all day but, as but, far as I'm but, concerned. Um, but look how much time you just spent describing that whole process versus the, the 10 seconds it took me to type in dog in an amusement park this morning. Okay, but if you're, not happy, if you're not happy with it, say, I want the dog to be a little bit to the left. You can say, no, I, I, don't, want, I don't want the sky to be sunny. I want it to be overcast. And imagine that this isn't, like I said, this will only spend three minutes calculating Why don't you guys take it outside? <laughs> no, no, I, 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 I'll, I'll, I'll wrap up. I'm kidding. I'll, Wait a second. Before you do this, is this going to go up on the screen, me at a oh. <laughs> at a hot bar? Is that that someone created during the break, or can we not <laughs> that, put that this is, on that the is Charles Dana, uh, a woman uh, uh, wearing a Darth Vader helmet? And, no, no, no. Drawn I'm, not, by I'm talking about me at a hot oh. bar. They, one of our coworkers, created oh. this beautiful work of art. Luckily, we can't put it on the screen. Yep. Andy Anatko, Unfortunately, all the other things we're going to talk about, we can't talk about. I love this because conversation. you and get off work, let's get five beers and then fight. By the way, I love that discussion, Andy. It's great to see you as great always. To be back, and by the way, tell people what the name of the site is again. Yeah, or they can just go to your Twitter account. What did we C R A I Y O N Y O N 
Uh, but if you find, if you go to WGBH's site, you'll see my name spelled out correctly. That's also a, a I-H-N-A-T-K-O. Go on Twitter. I've already posted links Great. to that and some of these images that you're seeing right now. Great to see Andy. Thanks for coming by. Really Cheers, good man. to see you in the flesh. Even better. I think we can take it downstairs Thanks, and have this conversation on stage at the Rob Lecture Center here. Andy Inhako is a, is a tech writer and blogger. You can find his work at inhako.com. You can follow him on Twitter at Inako. Again, that's I-H-N-A-T-K-O. Well, coming up in an age of minimalism and Marie Kondo, one Boston Globe writer and BPR contributor, that would be Matt Gilbert, is embracing the clutter. We'll open up the lines to ask you about the sentimental junk you can't help but hold on to. That after the quick break, you're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jared Bowen sitting in for Marjorie. I'm Jim Bradley. We're live at the Boston Public Library. By the way, a ton of people. I didn't even invite it. Texting. Uh, this is a real threat to artists, says one. Would this way of, quote, creating be acceptable in writing a story, a song, or a poem? A lot of great issues, which we will continue with you, actually, down the line. In about 15 minutes or so, we're going to have some incredible music from three performers at this weekend's uh, Fenway Porch Fest. But first, in a new column for The Globe, TV critic Matt Gilbert gets sentimental about the clutter he's amassed through the years. Movie ticket stubs, old books, homemade coffee mugs he made in grammar school, all collecting dust, but all sparking enough joy to justify keeping around. Sparking joy, of course, is the catchphrase from the legendary Marie Kondo, who built her career making the opposite case for living minimally wherever possible. We want to know if you can relate to Matt's love letter to clutter. Or you're more like Shirley the Young, you'll remember, who told us this week <laughs> that the joy of filling a dumpster outside her house with crap from her house over Memorial Day weekend eclipsed the fun she had on the July 4th weekend. In his piece, Matt Gilbert writes, quote, These dumpster lovers, uh, dumpster lovers preach with the vigor of those who found a higher path, almost cult-like in their insistence that purging is the only way to find peace in the present tense. We want to know, are you more of a Matt or more of a Shirley? And what joys has holding on to junk specifically brought to you? 877-301-8970. Call us or text us soon, because as I say, I'm only going to spend about 15 minutes on this, and then we're going to turn to music to end our day. Which camp are you in? I can't remember. You've got to be you know this. in the Marie Kondo, big time, right? Yeah, I mean, think, think of how passionate I was about art with Andy just now. Yeah. I'm the, I have the total opposite amount of passion for stuff. Just get rid. I'm with. I'm team. So Shirley, do you not buy stuff, or you throw it out uh, so that you're clutter free? Well, I try not to buy too much, but I'm a big fan of throwing things out. Well, I, by the way, or it, recycling, recycling. When I first heard of Marie Kondo four or five years ago, I totally got into the concept. I've said on the air a million times: there is nothing quite as satisfying. I mean this: is filling a box with stuff that you have not touched papers, documents, books you haven't touched in years and getting rid of it. Having said that, and I do some of that, and I would love to do more operationally, I think I end up in the mat. I'm far too much stuff, and it's really hard to part with. Marie Kondo is if you haven't used something, is it six months? I can't remember, whatever it is. If it doesn't spark joy in it, get rid of it. For me, it's 45 seconds. Is that, you know, I am, I literally am of the school. I'm not quite as extreme as Matt. I literally fall into the category of person who deludes myself into thinking, I, I mean this, my right hand is up. I haven't worn that jacket in 17 years, but I think I'm going to wear it this weekend. <laughs> I know this will shock you. I didn't, yeah. uh, but I still have it. 
8970. Two different appro approaches to clutter. The Matt Gilbert pro-clutter position and the pro-dumpster position of Cheryl. She wouldn't let us put the photograph on air. Did you see the photograph? I did see the photograph. She has this huge dumpster outside yeah. her personal home <laughs> with her husband and two kids full to the brim with crap from their house. And unfortunately, you didn't get to see her as we did that day on Zoom. The joy in her face was just... I will, I will come over to your house. I'll come over to your house and throw, throw well, out You know, stuff. there are people... When we first did a Marie Kondo segment, I would say three or four years ago, people who were in the business, or, you know, organizing closets, yep. and I don't mean to minimize it. It's a huge and important thing. Uh, offered for free to actually do it. And I said yes on the air, which I meant, and then I got skittish. <laughs> and I turned it down after the fact. Nancy and Merrimack, you're first on Boston Public Radio. Thank you for the call. Hi. Hi, Nancy. Nancy. Uh, yeah, I... I Hi, I think I have a very interesting problem. We'll decide that. that. Go ahead. I have, well, <laughs> anyway, my husband and I have spent most of our, our adult life uh, rebuilding an 18th century house, and it's the uh, house that's son of the first child born on the Mayflower, and we filled oh. it full of beautiful handmade 18th century furniture. And, you know, one could say it's, it's clutter, and on the other hand, it's, you know, it, it, it's a collection of absolutely beautiful handmade furniture. And we realized that uh, with a, the wave of a magic wand, it's all ca called brown furniture and has absolutely no value. And it's heartbreaking to think that we have gone from uh, revering our history to now seeing it as, you know, just get the uh, auction truck and load it up. Well, go ahead. Well, my it. take on that is, but you have enjoyed it for so long. You, it gave you joy. It gave you beauty. You love looking at it ex and experiencing it, and, and hopefully that will suffice. I, because I will tell you, part of my, my lesson in all of this was I remember when my grandmother died, and I remembered how important things were to her that she had, and I saw what happened when she died, which is you know, the natural course of things. Everything was distributed and just gone, and, and uh, it was fairly traumatizing to me, actually, but I think it kind of set me on a path to recognize, yes, I, just, I have to enjoy what I have, but fully be fully aware that there's going to come a time where nobody else is going to appreciate it the well, way I did. you've thought a lot about this. Well, I, I, you it, have. It impacted me. It had a huge I impact, bet. rather. Hey, Nancy, thank you for the call. Well, you know, I've mentioned, I think I mentioned this there before. I know I've told Marjorie. My mother, the love of my mother's life was not my father, believe me. It was her first husband. who was actually killed in World War II. In the basement of my house, I have the letters that were returned to my mother that were sent to my father. I'm not, he wasn't my father, I'm sorry. Her husband. But he had died, and they didn't know at the time. They were, it's a whole box. And you say to yourself, wouldn't one beautiful letter that my mother sent to Alan, that was his name, suffice? Instead, I have hundreds. So what advice, because you've thought about this more than I, what advice would you give me? Doesn't one do the trick? And I can't bring myself to dump the box. My mother's dead, by the way. That's another issue. But how about that? Well, you don't have to dump the box, but I think that one would survive, or you can even archive things now. I mean, that's the difference that we have now versus... For instance, the time when my grandmother was alive, we didn't really have the capabilities to digitally transfer things. It's like AI, and though, isn't it? <laughs> oh, here we go. Let's go to Arlene and Plymouth. <laughs> it is so not the same. Let's go to Arlene. By the way, I have to say, I'm not doing this because Andy's gone. The over People are still texting. They are overwhelmingly with you on this uh, AIR thing. Arlene, you're in Plymouth. You're on Boston Public Radio. Thank you for calling. What's up? Hi. Um, I have a chair from my grandmother um, yeah. that I stayed for 50 years. It was in the attic, and it, the back is caned, and the cane was off. I had one little piece and the center, and the, it was upholstered, but it, the 
feet, but it was falling apart. And I finally said to myself, I love this chair. I want to keep it. So I had it refinished, oh. came and reupholstered, and it's gorgeous. I think that's I'm a, happy. That's like that. a new chair, yeah. essentially, yeah. with old memories. That's great. I, I don't. That doesn't run afoul of anything, does? Are you, are you happy? You're happy, right? Oh, I'm happy. Yeah. Okay. Do you have a lot of other crap that you're holding on to, or just the chair? <laughs> exactly. I knew that was it. Arlene, thank you. Let's not evil laugh from Arlene. But by the way, that's a wonderful thing to do. If you have a, something that matters to you and it's getting old and crummy, then have it re-something, whatever the verb is, and make it like new but old. If you know what I'm and talking. And I think about. that's the other great thing about not having a lot is then you can really you'll see that chair, you'll see it among everything else a lot more easily and connect with it. Do you get to? The, are you like at the sickness stage when it comes to? You look, I'm looking at you. It sounds like I am dying to get over to your house. You have no <laughs> idea. The, uh, I have a lot of stuff. I really, I have, <laughs> I, have a lo- I have a lot of stuff. By the way, don't you think? I mean, I have two kids now, 28 and 30. You don't think it was important to save every single work of art they've ever done in their whole elementary oh, school? Oh, I thought life? you were going to save everything that you've done <laughs> that goes to the Jim Brody Museum. We have to clear, for those of everybody here at the library. We have to clear off Jim's <laughs> desk at the end of the day, and it all goes uh, to the Jim Brody by the archives. Way, there would not and be enough room at the Boston <laughs> Public Library. Eric in Bedford, hi. Hello. First hey. of all, thank you all for what you do so much. It's, You're very nice. You do an thank awesome you. job. What's up? And uh, it's really nice to hear Jared on and Miss Marjorie, but the two of you work very well together. That's I, just, great. I was going to say something about, um, you were saying junk and clutter. I believe everybody should get junk and clutter out of their lives, but I decorate with more of a sentimental value, things of art, that kind of stuff, and it's quite full. And I, but I structure it in a way that it's almost, I like to think of it as a sculpture. People, I had a best friend talk about like walking through a museum kind of thing. But I was blown away, Jim, by your story about the letters with your mom mm-hmm. and her first husband in World War One. And I just, as a suggestion, that just sounds gorgeous. And what a great conversation piece for people that visit your place. I was thinking perhaps one that's not too personal to be framed beautifully on the wall or something. And then underneath idea. that, like a footlocker from World War One with everything in there so that, you know, think of just the mystery of what's in the trunk as you walk by it or things like that. So just, I, I'm a that's huge good. fan of finding special things and just displaying them nicely and doing a lot of it. Well, Eric, you should come to my house instead of Jared. That actually is, <laughs> that's a beautiful idea. It was World War II, by the way, but that's a great idea. Eric, World thank War II, you. Sorry. No, that was, no, don't yep. apologize. It was great. Thank you. Mackenzie, one of her colleagues, writes I have a collection of stuff I've found in used books plane tickets, receipts for bounce checks from the 70s, handwritten notes. We'll never get rid of them. What's your response to Mackenzie? It, but it's, the point is, it's meaningful to her. Mackenzie, can you write another note and tell us why it's meaningful to you that you have receipts from bounce checks from the 1970s? I was going to say, by the way, I have a couple of things of my grandmother's. You do? Because I know how how important they were to her, so they're important to me. And hopefully anything that I have will get people around me, younger generations will understand the value, and and it gets passed on that way, hopefully. Okay. Okay. Marshall and Roxbury, you're next. Welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. How are you? Excellent. So I think that... um, um, any kind of art has to be wall worthy. You know what I mean? It's like I, I like have to that. Spot my wall, and, and, and it has to reach that certain criteria. And then if I have something that's a big, like a big chair or a big saw, something that's that big has to leave if I buy it. Oh, that's <laughs> a brilliant idea. Actually, that's a brilliant you know? idea. Yeah. One in, yeah. one out. I love that. Do you do exactly. that in practice or just in theory, Marshall? I do it in practice, except I have a couple of friends who keep giving me things in theory. <laughs> <laughs> Marshall, that's a great call. Thank you. That's actually a great way to live. I do that with live. clothes. 
What? I do that with clothes. You really do? Yep. yep. This is rather anal. You know that? I mean, this is odd, don't you think? I do not think it's Wait odd. Wait a second. You buy a jacket. You have really nice clothes, by the way. You buy a jacket and you get rid of a jacket? I do. I just made a trip to Goodwill the other day. I, I delivered five shirts to Goodwill because I had bought some new shirts. That's really unbelievable. We have time for one more. 877-301-8970. Is, I can't believe you really inspired a generation with your debate there with Andy Anatko about what is art and what is not. Joel, you're going to finish things up, and then we move to music. Joel in a car, welcome. Hi. Hi, Joel. Uh, hi. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, I am literally in my truck coming from a home that my brother has a business cleaning out. Great. Um, estate sales, divorce Great. sales, moving sales. I've got a truck full of Christmas ornaments. I'm bringing to a church who's having a Christmas in July bazaar tomorrow. That's great. Um, the, the amount of stuff we throw away that people have no interest in anymore, the personal mementos, it's incredible. Well, it's also great. Like you said, you went to Goodwill. You're, make, you're putting all this stuff that somebody doesn't use or need anymore to good use. Joel, good for you. Thank you. For your call. So what's the conclusion, do you think? The conclusion is I know when you're on vacation because I fill in for you. <laughs> so that's when I'll go over to your house. Yeah. It'll be all beautiful when you come back. I bet it will. All right. That's do all my desk at GBH first, would oh, you please? I, Thank I'm you. not going anywhere near that. <laughs> okay. Uh, that is all the time we have for that conversation. Live music is back next with players from this weekend's Fenway Porch Festival. Don't go away. You're listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. We're live at the Boston Public Library, streaming at youtube.com slash gbhnews. Marjorie's on vacation. She's back Monday. Jared Bowen has been beautifully sitting in all week. This week, by the way, I don't know when we started this, a couple of months ago, doing music, but it really like starts my weekend in a way that is just otherworldly great. We'll continue today. Tomorrow, close to 100 musicians will take the stages throughout Boston's Fenway neighborhood for their annual Fenway Porch Fest Music Festival. We're joined now by Marie Fukuda. Marie, it's good to meet you. Thanks so much for being here. Who's orchestrating the whole deal. And Red Shades, brilliant rapper, community leader, artistic powerhouse, who performed here a couple of weeks ago. You were huge, and we got great feedback on you. Who's curating her own show within the Porch Fest by the Landmark Center. We also have three great performers. We'll introduce them to you in a couple of minutes. But first, great to see you two. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having us. Our I'm pleasure. So honored to be back again. Oh, my God. <laughs> So to, to, to give us a preview, other than the musical preview we're about to hear, what is Fenway Porch Fest? What can people experience this weekend? Sure. So uh, Fenway Porch Fest is a one-day free music event happening over more than 30 different porches with 80-plus musicians. Um, you can see acts from everywhere, from the School of the Museum of Fine Arts to the Verb Hotel, all parks in between, all different types of music. And that's, by the way, one of the things that separate. We've done a lot of Porch Fest uh, things here. What seems to separate what you all are doing is 
the fact that it's all over the place. It's not one or two. It's really all over the community, right? I'd say that, and I'd also say the thing that really makes us unique is that we don't have porches. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. It is called the Porch Fest. You know that, but I just want to be clear. Is that correct? It's called Music Everywhere, Porch is Optional. That's our tagline. Is that really what it is? Oh, I love that. So, Red Shades, you've got a piece of the action here at the Landmark Center, yes? Yes, I do. What Uh, are you doing? So, I was called upon to curate a complete entire like event and show at 401 Park Drive. But I have been partnered with Fenway Porch Fest since its inception in 2018. It's not on porches. I want you to know it's, that. Just and so it wasn't clear. on a porch. Okay, it, was, it was in front of a, uh, a restaurant, and my very first one. And I just kept a relationship, and we continued to build one, even through the pandemic. And then they hit me up this year like, hey, we actually want you to curate one of our new sites. And here I am with the Aura Takeover. So <laughs> I think it's terrific. We're going to talk more. We're going to tell people how to find the locations and all that sort of thing. Uh, uh, Marie, do you want to introduce us? Tell us the name and of our first performer. Um, first performer's name is, actually, is it Joby? Oh, oh Joe I'm Freeman. I'm sorry, Joe yeah. Freeman's going to yeah. be joining us. Yeah, well, let's, Joe. Let, let's talk to, hey, Joe, how are you? I'm doing really well. Thanks for the invite, Jim. I appreciate it, and Jared, too. Our pleasure. So what's, what's your deal? What's your deal? Uh, I like to do uh, topical portraits of people. Uh, based on conversations, maybe sometimes doing a deep dive into historical characters or uh, people that maybe uh, I think Jared would appreciate this, that uh, maybe I meet at a pub and it is the antithesis, I would think, of an AI (laughs) uh, uh, production. That'll stay with us. Low folk is the a term I read in a bio of you. What does that mean? Yeah. Well, uh, I love folk music. Uh, big fan, of course, of morphine. And this is, uh, you know, I'm playing more of an acoustic guitar-style bass, so it has a lot lo- lower register. What are you playing for people here? Uh, this is a song called Tommy's Getting Buried and Born, and it was written in a pub, and we were having a conversation one day, me and a couple of regulars, and uh, what are we going to do with our end-of-life plans? And Tommy, who actually was a Vietnam vet, said, I know what I'm doing. I'm going to get buried in Bourne. That's but it's Bourne, Massachusetts, B-O-U-R-N-E, <laughs> and they have a national cemetery there. And honestly, Jim, I heard, got tapped on the shoulder by a voice of Willie Nelson, and he said, son, if you don't, Use that line in a song. you got to give it to somebody else. <laughs> so you use the Joe Freeman. Here he is. Tommy's getting buried and born. Let's go waltzing. One, two, three, two, three, three. Tommy's getting buried and born. I read it in the paper last Sunday morn. He helped out a lot of vets. I read He'd sit for hours Just listening to the stories The edge of the bed There's some kinds of memories You can't medicate away Hey Tommy's getting buried Being born Yeah, maybe that's why he talks so freaking loud at the end of the bar every night. Tommy's getting buried in Bourne. He 
worked at the post office just down the street. For 26 years, he walked the same banal beat. That's where a lot of our boys went after the war. Yeah, P-O-W-M-I-A. That's who that black and white flag flies there for. Yeah, maybe that's why he talks so freaking loud at the end of the bar every night. Tommy's getting buried in Bourne Big Court. Hold on. Tommy's getting buried in Bourne. Thank you, Tommy. Thank you, Willie Nelson and Joe Freeman. Joe, that was great. Thank you so much for being with us. Joe, can I ask her? Can I ask of course. a quick Joe, question? Because there. I am so obsessed with process. You get that kernel, and then what is your process to develop a story like that? Oh, uh, a write it down, <laughs> ASAP yep. on wherever you know. He's pointing to wherever his hands. Yeah. yeah, and then um, and just stay with it. You know, the the inspiration is a wonderful thing, but um, you do need to you know roll up your sleeves with the whole editing process. That's a whole another game. Job, thanks. Fantastic. That was great. It was really great. Thank thanks you, so Jim. much for being here. So in a minute, you're going to tell us, this is for you, Marie, where all the locations are. What if somebody wants to find Job? Do they have the ability to do that, or is that a little bit too uh, whatever? How they, do they do that? Yeah, they sure do have the ability. Um, anyone can go to FenwayPorchFest.org. The map and performers are up on the schedule. There's two ways to look up um, what's happening. One is by looking at the musicians and clicking on great. them. The next is to look at the map. Um, yeah. How'd this come about? Uh, not this one, but how'd this start? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, a great arts advocate posed a question to our organization. Um, our organizations are Fenway Civic, Fenway Alliance, and Fenway Community Development Corporation mm -hmm. about what's missing and what is it that you can do together that you can't do alone. And we really looked at how the neighborhood didn't have any community arts festivals. We didn't have open studios, and we thought... Porchfest would be great. Mindy Freed from JP Porchfest was oh. a great advocate of bringing community together through the arts and promoting artists, and, and that's what we wanted to do. That's great. So, Red, I would imagine that there's this magic here. First, people finding you, you hear this, and they, they make a, a, an appointment to do this this weekend, and then people just walking down the street who find you. What is that like as a performer to kind of have this organic performance happen? Yeah, that's one of the reasons why I love Fenway Porch Fest in particular. In 2019, I remember I performed uh, right in front of the harp, and uh, at first there were like about five people there, and, you know, we're audible, like, throughout the whole neighborhood so people could hear us. And my friends, actually, that didn't plan on coming, they were, like, grocery shopping. And they heard <laughs> me, and they walked over. And before you knew it, uh, the whole street was flooded with just, like, passerby, like, passer goers, like, oh, what's going on? Like, because a lot of people didn't even know this was a thing. And like Marie said, it wasn't on an actual porch. So they were like, why are they just performing in the street? <laughs> but this is awesome music. So it's great. You get new fans. Um, you meet curators, volunteers. So it's just a great opportunity. Plus, the weather is going to be spectacular. Yeah. So I'm sure everybody's nervous about that in advance. Let's go to performer number two. If I say your name is Mar Fios, how close am I going to be? Super close. No. Well, how close was I really? 
Like really close. Like really close? <laughs> like really good. Well, you are Mar Files. You're with Jose. Introduce Jose to us. You're a pianist. You're a accompanist. Yeah, I mean, Jose is one of my best friends. And uh, we have been playing together a lot lately. And he's an amazing musician, also like Berkeley grad. We graduated from the same master's program oh. at Berkeley. And You're from Barcelona, no? I am from Barcelona, and he is from Costa Rica. Oh, really? Yeah. And how'd you end up here? Well, by the way, Jose does not have a mic, or I'd asked him too. But Mar, how did you end up? Uh, <laughs> how'd you end up in Boston? Um, because I came to do my undergrad at Berkeley. Oh, you did? And that happened like six years ago. And then I just did the undergrad, then I worked for a while. Then I did my master's, and then now I'm a faculty at Berkeley, and I'm, like, gigging around. Oh, that's so, great. How'd yeah. you get involved with the Fenway Porch Fest with no porches? <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually, it was Berkeley that told me about it. They sent me an email, like, I think that you would be a perfect um, sort of, like, candidate. If you are interested in doing it, it's going to be so much fun. We would like you to go. And I was like, yeah, I'm just going to apply and... And yeah, here we are is. here today. What are you performing today? <laughs> I am performing one of my originals. This oh. is part of my first album. Uh, it's in Spanish, and the album is called Mi Propia Religión. I published that in 2020. And we are going to do this song that is called Putles in Abril, that basically talks about a breakup and how you are like losing a person that matters a lot to you, um, and how you, how you feel that you are not, in a way, um, incomplete, but there's something that is missing. It's like you are a closed puzzle. This is the meaning. Wonderful. Mar and Jose, take it away. Thank you. Recuerdos que te di 
song about a breakup are you writing what you know uh, and, and if you are what is it like to put a piece of you out publicly publicly like that i want to be like very honest it was really hard for me to put this song out there because i felt that i was kind of like shouting to the world something that was very private to me um but after a while i was like that is what music is about like we need to do music that is authentic and this is our way to express ourselves, and a lot of people may relate to that, and that's going to be That's why I don't do music. I don't want to tell anybody <laughs> anything. You guys were fabulous. Thank you so much. Thank You're you. really... That is unbelievable. And there are how many artists? We've heard two. How many artists performing all the venues, Marie? So there's more than 80 artists, and I think the thing I just want to tack on to mm -hmm. is that it's really the artists that are making this event. It's not about the organizers, and uh, hearing this music today and this great talent, Red was one of the artists that I came onto my radar in 2016, and I was so happy when she joined us the first year. It's about them. Um, Speaking so, of happy, look yeah. at you. You two are the happiest people I've seen in months. Are you not nervous about this thing, Red? No, I'm honored, actually. I'm excited, and I can't believe that, you know, the relationship turned into what it's become. Uh, I, I had no idea I'd be, you know, doing something of this magnitude. With Why does this Puffin? matter? I mean, it's huge fun, obviously. As a yeah. Just standing here and listening to these incredible artists, and there's another to go in a second. It's so huge, particularly at a time like this when everybody's so miserable about so many things. Why does this matter in the grand scheme of things, Red Shades? Because it, it embodies and it gets to show what community really is. Uh, it pushes a lot of artists to the forefront who otherwise wouldn't get an opportunity. Just think of how many people are going to discover so many new artists tomorrow in a, in a really great uh, part of the city because Fenway like everybody's always there and you know it's going to be hot out tomorrow so I just think it's a great opportunity and you got, how many artists do you say about 80 artists about 80 yeah so you hear every manner of music I would imagine every manner of performance I mean that's what's the range how do you describe the range of what people <laughs> experience we've got everything from hip hop jazz hyper pop neo funk so we have a classical <laughs> string orchestra and a petting zoo. We even have a youth circus troupe performing at Evans Of course Way. you do. Oh, Why I wouldn't love you? that. Now, yeah. are you holding those T-shirts because they're going to give them to us, or what are you doing here? <laughs> I'm Let's giving them to it. you, but I'm also saying this is a way to find out what's Hold happening on the ground. Right, um, there it is. Okay. There will be volunteers wearing these bright yellow T-shirts, and they'll have brochures. They'll tell you what's happening where, and uh, that's about it. You don't think you're misrepresenting by calling it Fenway Porch Fest? I mean, I'm obsessed with this now. No? <laughs> No? Yes, you are. Okay, fine. I'll take my T-shirt. Thank you very much. <laughs> now, Red Shades, yes. the final performer, I believe, is from your venue. Is that correct? Yes. Who are we going to hear? We are going to hear International Show. But he goes by show is what I understand. Is that correct? Yeah, when you get to know him, he goes by show. He does a lot do of I things. Do I know you He's well enough to call you show or not? <laughs> yes, you do. I do? Yeah. We just met like an hour ago. I know. We just met, but we feel like family. Feel uh, we like do, family. actually. You know, speaking of the prior performer uh, is from Barcelona, you lived in Russia for a while? Is that what yeah, you Yeah, actually for the course of uh, on and off for three years. Yeah. What were you doing there? 
I was doing music. I got signed to this independent label uh, called Out Label, and they had me doing uh, a lot of recording, songwriting, production, mixing and mastering. So you know what we'll do? Here's the compromise. I'm going to call you international show. Right. And then if you're good, I'll start <laughs> calling you show. Is okay, that a deal? Cool. That's, a, that's a deal. What are you performing for us? Uh, I am going to be performing uh, one of my singles called You're, You'll Save Me. And uh, I'm a Christian rap artist as well, mm-hmm. uh, hip-hop artist. And um, this story just really goes to something, a, a personal traumatic time in my life where I got into an, a, a car accident. And I ended up uh, climbing this guardrail to get out of the way I was in on the highway. And um, I thought there was some standing room on the other side of the guardrail, and there wasn't, and I fell 15 feet. And uh, I was just, God just provided shelter. He provided care. And I, did, I wasn't paralyzed. I wasn't hurt or anything like that. Uh, obviously sore, and uh, I was in, you know, a brace for a little bit, but... If it wasn't for the grace of God, I wouldn't be here today. So this is what this um, story is about. International show. We're really excited to hear you perform. Thank you. We're seconds away here. Just a second. in a row with nowhere to go The only one I know to call on is you Cause Lord you'll save me You'll save me in my path, yeah, I ain't even gotta ask, the reason why I do it fast, so you can cleanse all the bad, what I've been through these past years, to took the wheel, you shift the gears, but I never made it without ya, I can never make it without, pick me up out the darkness, it's literal, it's not a metaphor, I know your angels had a part in this, that's what my mama been praying for, could've been so paralyzed, could've been dead in the ditch, everywhere I'ma tell my story, look at what my God is there. Give me a second chance to go live this life That's another chance to go get it right I can hear you telling me it's alright I just want to thank you, Lord, hands to the sky, yeah Lost in the road With nowhere to go The only one I know to call on is you Cause, Lord, you'll save me Lord, you'll save me. Uh. I'm lost in the road with nowhere to go. The only one I know to call on is you, cause Lord, you'll save me. You'll save me. You'll save me. Cause you're there when I fall, you'll save me uh, uh. You know how it feels to sleep with a mask on 
Cause you can't breathe in your sleep, Lord, thanks for making my back strong. When I fell 15 feet, uh. Every day could be my last, falling asleep at the wheel. My mind telling me to pull over, but I keep fighting my will like it's only 20 minutes I can make it. Wait to my destination, doing 85, feeling like I'm racing till mama goodnight, I'll call you later. Didn't know that later may not come. My God, I was about to leave my son, no. Give me a second chance to go live this life. That's another chance to go get it right. I can hear you telling me it's all right. I just want to thank you, Lord, hands to the sky, yeah. Lost in the road with nowhere to go. The only one I know to call on is you, because, Lord, you'll save me. You'll save me. You'll save me. Because you're there when I fall. You'll save me. You'll pick me up out the dark. International show. Thank you. Thank you so much. Appreciate wow. it. Wow. And there's 77 more? Is that the, I mean, this is really... There might be a little over that because I'm bringing a lot. I bet you are. <laughs> we got to thank you both. We really appreciate it. Marie Fukuda, uh, Red Shades, thank you so much. And again, it's FenwayPorchFest.org to get all the information you need. Thanks. It's great to see you both. Good luck this weekend. Jared, quickly, what are you doing on Open Studio? Uh, we'll talk to uh, Boston's Man of Murals, one of my favorite people in the city, Rob Black Gibbs. Right. If you go down to the Greenway, you see a giant mural. That's Rob's. We talked to him all about that mural. I speak with the contemporary artist, Leslie Dill, who looks at some of America's visionary spirits in her newest exhibition, and an author who is prof- uh, author and illustrator and painter who is profoundly il- uh, um, influenced by Maurice Sendak. That would be Oliver Jeffers. So it's a great threesome on the show tonight. Okay, we don't have time to thank all the people as we do in every show, but we've got a particular thank the on-site engineers of the BPL, Cy Patel, Cullen Cockrell, Rob Fagnan, who I think now is back in Brighton, without whom this beautiful sound and the pictures you saw today couldn't happen. Congratulations to you two. You have, if these three are any indication, Fenway Porch Fest is going to be great. Hope it's terrific. Jared, you've been absolutely wonderful this week. Thanks so much for being Thank here. You. Thank you all for coming. Marjorie is back on Monday. Have a wonderful and safe weekend. And don't forget the Fenway Porch Fest. See you then. Bye.